Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cue It Up Network. I've got Demetrius Gelatis is my name. I'm here, attended. And then I've got with me, Nate Tam, right? Tam? What's going on? Yep, Nate Tam. A lot of people call me Sensei Nate. That's the name of my... Sensei Nate. That's right. So, already plugging the channel. I love it. So, well, <laughs> he goes right in. I thought no, you meant the 10 no, seconds. Here's the, thing, though. here's the thing, Demi, is... I actually, I, I have decided, I have decided to never ask for a like or a sub ever. But every time I meet someone in pool world, they're like, Nate Tam, that sounds familiar. Are you the Sensei Nate guy? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. me. But I never <laughs> actually say it. So. so you're clarified for the introduction sake. So as it turns out, Nate does have a YouTube channel and it's uh, Sensei Nate uh, Plays Pool. So, yep. and I enjoy it. And so... Uh, you know, it's, it's a budding, it's a budding channel, but you've done well. And, uh, I like it. And so there's a lot of YouTube content these days. And so whenever somebody starts a new channel, I'm always like, you know, I'm always a little skeptical. Like, what are you going to do that sets you apart from the army of people posting like trick shots and stuff? And I think you have an answer, uh, that speaks to me anyway. So what, why don't you start with that? What did you do? Like, what is your thought on answering that question? Uh, I think it just starts with the fact that I'm just obsessed with learning pool and I'm obsessed with like, you know, pool as it is in, in culture as it is today. I watch a lot of pro pool. So just, just whatever a pool nut is in 2023, that's just kind of what I am obsessive. And, uh, I don't know, like my, my mindset has always been with all of my hobbies and, and, and I've had plenty of hobbies pool has just been the latest one. Um, it, I've always been a very sort of cerebral, um, you know, workhorse kind of guy. Like I, I sort of live in the game and I don't, I don't really socialize a whole lot. I don't really, uh, I don't have a lot of time to compete or anything, but, but just to be able to have time at a table and I'm lucky enough to have, um, a space where I can train, but that's, that's sort of what brings me joyous is, is just like figuring out stuff on the table and learning from all sorts of sources. We can get into that later, but, but yeah. So how long have you been passionate? How long, when, when did you get the pool bug? Remind me. Uh, <clears throat> so I started, I picked up my first cue. I say picked up my first cue. Like I've never played pool before, but, uh, I started playing about five years ago. Okay. That's what I like to say. And then, and then around, around COVID, I started getting serious about learning. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? COVID was really good for the indoor games, I think. But, uh, so the, um, what were the, uh, what were the other games or hobbies or obsession? Let's call them obsessions. Like if you had to pick like three or four of the other major obsessions you've had prior to pool. Uh, well the, the sensei nickname comes from karate. So, so I'm a martial artist. Uh, I studied Shotokan karate, Japanese style karate. And there's a lot of sub styles within Shotokan, but um, yeah, so that's that's what I did, uh, and and I've been practicing that for about 15 years now, um, and and I just train on my own now. I don't I don't go to a dojo. I don't have time to go to classes or anything, but I have I have trained a lot and I've I've taught before, and um, yeah, so that's where that nickname comes in. So karate is one of them. Uh, I was a competitive gymnast from the oh. ages, yeah, from the age of. Um, almost four I think I, I think I was almost four when my parents like put me in there they're like this guy has too much energy throw him into this thing and then I competed until I was 
2015 or something. And then I coached for five years after that. Wow. So uh, when you competed, was, was it like straight up like rings and stuff or? Oh yeah, it was, it was, it was. So when I was a gymnast, they classified the levels differently. They literally called them classes and you went from class 10 to class one, one being Olympic level. And I went to class two, I was competing uh, class two, which is just, just under like Olympic level. So I was doing all the stuff that you might see, uh, uh, uh like in gymnastics in the Olympics, but at a lesser level, obviously. And That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you, but, but even if you didn't like win a gold medal at the Olympics or anything, you, you, you lived it enough to understand what the road to the top looks like and what it takes and all that. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was, I kid you not. I was, I was, I was training six hours a day, six days a week. It was nonstop. It was like, I could, I had to leave school early. I had like this special thing where I got to leave middle school early to get to the gym on time. Cause it was like 45 minutes away or something. And then, um, and so my parents came to me, they're like, look, if you got kind of two options, you can not go to high school. You can be homeschooled and you can just be a gymnast or you can, you know, essentially quit and have a life and be a high schooler. And I chose the latter and I'm happy I did. Yeah. Yeah. So when we get into talking about like pool, this is great. So, uh, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you and, you know, is that because you started pool somewhat recently, you know, your experience with pool and the way you look at the game is probably like, I mean, I grew up playing pool in the nineties and, you know, color of money was, you know, not long gone. And it was a little bit of a different culture and a little bit of a different, it was a definitely, you know, different games, different environments, and different set of structures. And and so I kind of wanted to hear, like, you've you've been on a bad tear with pool. You've done, you know, really well. Uh, you're on the upswing. You've, God, you've soaked it up so quickly. And that's one thing that I've noticed is different. Uh, so one of the things I kind of wanted to think about was just some of, the, some of the differences between, you know, the pool landscape today versus how it used to be, uh, where it might be going. And, and, and you can really represent this side because, yeah, you're, uh, you're new school, baby. So... Um, but, um, let's see. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. I know, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the break shot. Uh, I've got a couple of things on my mind. So yeah. Um, okay. So I got to hijack things. We were talking about, those were previous hobbies, Olympics, uh, hobbies, you're a lifer. Yeah. 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 So Olympics so, and karate. Olympics, karate. Uh, I, I was, I was a competitive archer when I was a, like a younger kid, like when I was 10. Cool. Um, I was on the like a junior Olympic team, um, so recurve archery, and then um, yeah, you know, I picked up like bowling. Uh, I I've been into music my whole life. I'm a I did vocal training, singing. I was in a music theater a lot, so I did. I've just been a very busy person, and all of the things that I'm into just require individual skill levels that probably like team sports. I just I've never really done team sports. Yeah, yeah, it's still good. Teams are, Steve sports are terrible. Um, well, well, hold on. Well, I mean, this guy just straight, okay, all right. I mean, just, it's like everyone just lets you down perpetually. It's basically like, it's like, uh, you know, you might as well just get married. Uh, okay, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, wow. <laughs> anyway, okay, I thought I'd just build on that, see where it went. Okay, no, uh, okay, what was I going to ask you? I was going to ask you something. So, when you got in the pool, what was it about pool that sucked you in? Like, what was it where you're like, this scheme is awesome. I want to, I want to go down this rabbit hole. Oh my God. I don't even know where to start. I think what's great about pool is you don't know why you love it at first. 
You know, like I think, and I've met people like this before where they're just like, I just love to play. And I kind of, I kind of had this conversation with them before too, where they don't really know why it's so great other than just the feeling of, of having an idea in your head, getting down and executing it and it going your way. It's like, it's a, a drug, man. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't disagree at the, at the base. That is, that is something, you know, when you're just staring at a lay on a balls and you know, it's funny too. One thing that I think about sometimes is, you know, over the years, it gets to the point where when I look at a pool table, sometimes I don't see a pool table anymore. Like I just, it's like, I, you know, they mean zeros and ones like the matrix or something where it's like, all I, it's just, if, you know, I mean, of course I see a table, but it's like, all I, I'm seeing is like, you know, angles and zones and patterns and, and, and I'm seeing all these, uh, you know, all these recollections of keys to certain things and which priorities on certain shots. And, you know, there's strategies and routines and all these things. And sometimes you just have to rub your eyes and look at it again and be like, there's just balls on a table. You're just knocking them into holes. And it's pretty cool, you know? And it's like, you can't ever lose that, you know? Yeah, for sure. And and I think that's maybe, I, that sort of slips into like the flow state conversation just a little bit. But, um, but yeah, that's, and you know, you know me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm big into that. Uh, and, and the, and the research on that. But uh, I think that that's a big part of it is not, not really seeing pool as just the game. So what do you like? What do you mean by that? I, I think I know, but just... well, it, yeah, like it's sort of like what you're saying. Uh, you're not just looking at it as the layout. You're not looking at the table as the table, but it's all the other things about it that get you excited. It's it's not yeah. it's not about making the ball. It's about how you make the ball and 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 what you're doing with the cube. It's it's all the things. Again, not to not to get like flow state heavy, but it's the like the struggle. The struggle stuff is fun, you know. It's it's all the things you think about and learn, and then when it comes time to do it, if you do it, it just makes it that much better. Yeah, yeah, and and it's amazing, you know. When it comes down to it, like I, you know, um, okay, so I should plug a couple things for myself too. We plugged your channel. Uh, I haven't done a podcast for a while, and so maybe we got new listeners. So. Uh, I'm Demetrius. I have a uh, I have a pool coach, and I do three day pool boot camps uh, for intermediate to advanced players. Uh, so people from any I'm in Minnesota, but you could come in from anywhere because we do three days. We block it up. You come to train with me. It's pretty intense, and uh, and we go down the rabbit hole. And and like I like to say that there's teaching and training. Teaching is like you know giving you new information or new ideas, but then training is like working on it till you could do it and you can see it come out in your game. And when I do this, uh, of course, there's both, uh, but I make sure I'm doing both. So I'm not just giving a lesson where I'm like, here's a couple of things. Good luck. It's like I have, you know, there's 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 certain things where I highlight ideas of how I think pool should look. And then I I take that person. I look at their game. I figure out where I think they need to develop uh, what's what's missing, where that where what steps we could take. We outline that we 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 do the teaching part so they see what it should look like and why. And then we develop it. And so that they can see a difference in their game. So they they play better when they leave, and then they've got a road to go forward on their own. Uh, I also do some back end support to make sure they're on the right road, continuing. So I do the coaching. So if anyone's interested, go to my website. It's uh, Minnesota. It's mnpoolbootcamp.com, which stands for Minnesota. mnpoolbootcamp.com, and um, it would be I'd love to hear from you. And then I also uh, have been doing the mental game coaching, which has been a lot of fun. So uh, for people that are interested in you know, try to get a good approach to navigate pool. 
uh, the mental side a little bit. Um, I run those as well. And I've been doing three sessions. So like three, it's basically three, two hour sessions and, uh, in a, in a small three person group by zoom. So for people that are interested in hearing, you know, maybe learning an approach to try to tackle the mental game challenges. And I should ask, you know, you, this is kind of an awkward thing. Cause I mean, now I'm, you know, we're live and I, I didn't ask you off air, but like you actually uh, joined one of our mental game classes. I, and so- I did. I was, I was going to mention it. I was like, yeah, I haven't done your boot camp. Of course, I want to come out still and, and do that. That's a whole logistics thing. And, you know, we'll see what the boss says one day. Um, <clears throat> but we did, um, we did do that mental training. I'm telling you, man, it was great. I learned a lot. Uh, it really impacted my game. And, uh, you know, I, I, I performed, you know, at a higher level since then. And I'm not trying to chalk it up as to say like, hey, Demetrius gave me these tips and now all of a sudden I'm shooting great. To some extent, that's that's it. But but just recognizing the journey of how you get from where you are to where you want to be. And and it, it there's a lot of good objectivity in there. Very cool. So I uh, I hope to hear from some people. I've got, uh, I'm doing a mental game coaching right now. My January is a tournament month for me. I'm playing, I still play as well. I'm playing Turning Stone and Derby, which is great. So I'm going to be... What? Probably doing my next mental game session will start in February. I've got one or two people ready to go, so I'm looking for one or two people more to join February, March, April session. So reach out to me. You can, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to give them my email info at mnpoolbootcamp.com. What were you going to say? Info at mnpoolbootcamp.com. Cool. Um, I was going to ask you when you play derby, are you one of those guys that is it is at the pool table night and day for five days or do you treat it like other tournaments where you go in you compete you go back to your hotel room you rest yeah so i first of all the the things are different things are really different at derby uh table availability is non-existent so you can't really play all day every day uh because there's you can only play matches there's really not there's not much opportunity to get you know off you can't really get on a table outside of a match uh, that being said, the good news is, you know, that because of the way they schedule matches and because of the turnouts, you might end up playing all day every day. <laughs> but anyway, so if you, you know, if you if you stay in those events for a little while, like I'm sure you remember, like the 24 hour session from last. Oh, time. it was it was like Shane versus Fetter at four in the morning or something crazy. So one minor gripe about that, and I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to go. You know, I'll just it's a pain. It's pain. It hurts right here in the cockles. I uh. You know, because when you play hard, I think I was, I think I won my first six matches on the nine ball, which, you know, it's, you know, that's a combination of good draw and good play. But, but I mean, that's, I mean, the money and I'm playing to get deep. Well, the problem was my sixth match, I think it was six. It might've been, I don't remember, but Friday night, they're normally, no, I know what it was. They're normally through the sixth round by Friday night, but on Friday night, they were playing the fifth round out and they were really far behind and I was waiting to play. And it kept saying to be determined at 11 p.m. midnight. I kept refreshing. I'm like, man, they can't call me now. But the tournament director said, no, you got to be available. Oh so then God. they they had to finish the fifth round, no matter how late it went on Friday night. So I'm sitting there refreshing. But the problem was, you know, the tournament director probably did the right thing. Okay, it just isn't in my favor. They wanted to get the matches done for all the top players that they figured actually had a chance to win the tournament. So I'm sitting there at midnight. And they're like, uh, Shane, you're up there. Uh, who else? Shaw, we're going to put you over there. And I had to wait and watch all the top players get called. And I didn't get called until like two in the morning or something like that. So I get done with my match. It's like three 30 and I'm hyped. Like I was really dialed in. I, 
I think I played I played a good set. I won like nine to one or nine to two. And I was feeling like I mean, you know how it is when you feel like you can lift up the pool table. I'm sitting there like oh, yeah. adrenaline is pounding. It's three forty. I'm like I'm gonna put my cue case away, go to the front desk, and they and and they tell me my next match is at nine a.m. and it was brutal. So I went to I went to bed and I could not fall asleep. I was just so jacked. I didn't get to bed till five. Now if you have a nine a.m. match, what time do you get up? You know what I mean? I, right. It's like at that point you got to get up at like seven just because you got to get your body moving, grab a granola bar, you know, get, get a, you know whatever, take a take a shower, get hit a couple racks of balls, and then it's like it was brutal. And I'm playing Elliot Sanders from Europe, who's like a yeah. fast, loose, and he's a straight oh, yeah. shooter, man. He's got a lot of oh, firepower. Yeah. And he's just out there, like, attacking the table. And now, to be fair, we were all the same schedule. But anyway, it was it was bad. It was really, really difficult. And uh, I lost I lost that match, and I lost to Danny Olsen. And uh, I, I it was just brutal because it's like, I would have liked to have, you know, you work really hard to get, it, you know, not in contention, but you work hard to give yourself a chance to make a good run. And then uh, sometimes you just kind of feel like you get, it's pretty tough sometimes. That's all. Anyway, I was going to ask you about that at some point. When you're physically that tired, how yeah. do you actually how do you actually pull through and perform? That's so difficult. I had I had a tournament where I I went pretty deep. It's like a 92 person tournament, and I went deep um, to like final eight. I got out final eight, but by the time I was out, it was three in the morning, and my body was out. I was like passed out. I was playing super well. I was wasn't thinking about anything. I was just playing super well, and I lost because of mental of a single mental error. Well, okay, so I actually um, I've got a couple two things I can say about this. Uh, I because I asked Jesse Angle that question. He's you know, we were at a tournament together, and I was really struggling with fatigue. And I I'll, I'll I agree with what he said to me. But one answer, the other, I'm going to give you the second answer first. So the second answer is it's going to affect, and so. If, if you ask the question, like, what do I need to do such that fatigue doesn't impact my performance? That makes the assumption that there's something you could do to where fatigue doesn't impact your performance. But anybody that's like, but then if you said to somebody like, hey, what should you do if you have a big bash the next day? It's like, well, you know, eat good, get plenty of rest, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, uh, if that's the advice you give somebody before a big bash, then obviously there's a reason for that. So if we don't get plenty of rest, like it's, I mean, it's going to make an impact. And if we look at Derby again, by the time Shane and Federer and Alex got to the last three, uh, they were on fumes that it was showing, you know? So, yeah. And so, so to have, but the point is to have the expectation to go back to, you know, our, our mental training and stuff, talking about expectations. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, for people that are curious, some of my thoughts on mental game, uh, little Chris, another YouTuber, little Chris just posted a video called the competitor cycle where he and I were talking a little bit about something that so if you guys want to like a sneak preview like what does this guy have to say about mental game it's not really like my mental game system but it shows some of my ideas uh as as far as how how to look at things so anyway uh expectation plays a role and if we have the expectation that we ought to be able to avoid fatigue impacting our performance well now we're just making it worse because not only is it going to affect our performance but now we're going to be frustrated that it's affecting our performance because we're trying to control something we can't control which is we have these gorilla bodies that need sleep and, and we're going to sit here and will ourselves into being a, a machine that runs on, you know, I don't know, whatever Tesla's run. So it's like, I, we're not, you know, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Red Bull. So, okay. So, but the other answer that Jesse gave me was, um, and I, this has helped me. And I, I'd say he says, basically take nothing for granted, like nothing. 
And this is something I've seen to be true and it's helped me. When I'm tired, I can't tell you how many times I've been playing where I'm running the balls and I'm trying to hit certain spots and trying to get on a certain ball. And all of a sudden I just shoot and something rattles or doesn't go in. I'm like, that was a routine. Like, how did that not go? And what I found is things that are like, things that are like when you have enough energy and you have a little pep in your step, I don't know. There's just, when when you're dragging, sometimes you could just skip steps and take things for granted where you just think that you're going to make that ball or you think that like nothing could go wrong here. And when he told me that, and I was watching how he plays, it's like, here's the, the best analogy or comparison I could give is, suppose you have like a four ball run and you're in the finals of the tournament and it's Hill Hill. You don't really take at that point, like you may have been playing up and, you know, if you're playing early round matches and you're kind of in stroke, maybe you're kind of autopilot or running open racks and you got a little rhythm. But once you're down to four balls on the Hill Hill, now there's a school of thought where people are like, oh, just play on the same way. But yeah, it's <laughs> so, okay. So, so in any case, I'm going to finish one sentence and I'll ask your opinion on that. But, but basically when it's Hill Hill and you've got four balls left, each one of those shots is an adventure. And each one of those shots is his own experience that needs to be, it's almost like each one of those shots is a movie. And it's like every part of that is a big deal. And you have to really bear down and, and make sure you do it right. And basically that's how you have to play when you're tired. You have to treat every game like it's a hill, hill, mm. three ball run. That's, that's kind of what I take it away. And because otherwise, if you just think that you're going to kind of like just rub those balls out, it's like, oh yeah, I'll just run them out. It's like things go haywire in ways that are really weird when you're fatigued. So you just have to really, you have to stay in that uber grind mode. So but what do you, first of all, what do you think of that advice? It's like, it's almost like you read my mind because when I told you that I, I lost that, I lost that, I really felt like I was going to win that tournament, by the way. And then I go in and I, and I make this small mental error. And the mental error was exactly what you're talking about. I skipped one of my, I, I went, I didn't check an angle. Like I didn't, I didn't check to see if a ball went. It was like a, it was like a small pocket um, that the ball went. And uh, I didn't realize it wasn't a pocket at all. I just shot it because um, it was three in the morning and I couldn't walk two feet without that much energy being spent. So that speaks to me because that's how I lost. Uh, yeah. 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 So what, what about the idea, what would you say to somebody that was saying, well, you should play the hill hill the same as you should play any other rack and just treat it the same. Otherwise you're just making it harder than it needs to be and putting extra pressure out of yourself and you should just, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it, my instinct is to say that there's time for everything. There's a time for everything. Uh, and so like what you're saying, if it's, if you're kind of free flowing, it's in the beginning and you know, if it's either in the beginning of the match or your first your first couple matches, you're really feeling confident. You're feeling comfortable. Like I don't check every angle. Like I, I just don't. Um, is that something I should probably work on? Yeah, and that's something my coach is. You know, you know, Bo running in. He's my coach. Yeah. Hey, shout out to Bo run again. Yeah, he's mentioned that too before. Uh, you know, just making sure that I stay diligent or am making the right choices to make my game optimal, and I'm not being lazy. Um, <clears throat> and you know, that's just that's one of those things. But also. Like anyone who's ever been in flow playing pool before doesn't like, you know, you don't do that. You don't check every angle when you're, when you're really in rhythm, you know? Well, I don't know. I think that, okay. So every angle, I guess it depends on what you mean. Like, okay, I'm picturing like, for example, I'm picturing the eight ball basically hanging in front of a side pocket and the nine ball hanging in front of the corner. 
if I can see from my side of the table that the eight, that the nine's hanging, and if I stop on the eight ball, I could roll the nine in, and there's like, yeah. there's nothing to check. Yeah. So in that case, I wouldn't like walk around and look at my nine ball shot. But that's about the type of situation I need to not want to walk around the table and check my angle. So I can't say every angle I check, but but this leads to a story I want to share, and it's something else I wanted to talk about, and I want to kind of dive. Is a this leads to another subject. So I'm, before I go down that road. We were talking about treating the, the hill hill like any other game, and you said there's a time for each. So, why don't you why don't you give an example of what you mean by a time for each? Well, I think I think it's that it's that circumstance where you you really are feeling the gear. Okay, you know, like when you're when you're in gear, timing and rhythm when you're when you're in stroke like that is so much more valuable than a lot of other things. At least this is my experience. Uh, and I think I'm sure everyone's going to have their own experience. But for me, if I'm really feeling the table and I'm in stroke, kind of like what you said, I'm just going to try to play it like I always play it. I'm not going to pay attention to that last, those last four balls in the same way when you're talking about it's hill, hill, you're in the final and it's the final four balls and you're up. At some point that switches, you know, like if I'm not in flow, if I'm not in gear, of course, I'm going to be a workhorse, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. And it's so I'll say the same idea. Maybe I'll say it in different words, but I, I completely agree. I think that if you're looking at those last four balls and 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 you just are feeling like the only danger is that you can celebrate too soon because you know you're gonna run them out and they just all you can see is I know I can do that, I know I can get there, I know I can do that. I see everything that could go wrong, but I'm confident I can do what I need to do to hit the right spots and, and stay in line and this is good. Now I just need to get down and do it. I feel good. Let me do it. But what I would say is if you're down on those last four balls. So if somebody says, well, why would you do anything differently? I have an answer for that, which is it goes back to the balance beam idea, right? Where the, yeah, here, a gym, I'm going to speak to you as like one gymnast to another. <laughs> okay. uh, the whole thing about if there's a balance beam a foot off the ground, everybody can run across it. But if you put the balance beam a hundred feet in the air, oh yeah, nobody can walk across it. So is it the same balance beam? And the answer is, well, the balance beam is the same, but we're not, we're, we're humans. And so we're experiencing a different level of, of anxiety because there's a different level of consequences. There's a different level of importance that we're assigning this. And so that can generate different feelings and different thoughts. And so if we are feeling different feelings and different thoughts, that four ball run, if I'm up four, nothing, and I'm running a guy over and I'm at stroke, I'm not going to be having the same thoughts that I might be having if it's hill, hill. And I was up eight to four going to nine and the guy just won four racks in a row. And I finally got a chance to, to, to run these four balls out. And I've missed my last couple opportunities. And all of a sudden it's, you know, I got a four ball run where it's like I dogged the last couple and now it's Hill Hill. All of a sudden I've got maybe a different feelings I'm dealing with and I've got different thoughts that I'm dealing with. And so I'm dealing with thoughts. I'm dealing with fears. I'm dealing with. Um, and so for me, and you know this because it's part of my mental game approach is like, if I'm in a, if I'm not in a happy spot and I'm not feeling confident and I'm dealing with like, you know, extreme emotions and, and some destructive thoughts, like I, those things need to be addressed in some way, you know, be, I need to, and there's different ways to do it, but the bottom, and we're not here to get into how to deal with that. But the point is it's not the same four balls because I'm not dealing, because I'm dealing with a whole different set of mental challenges that I'm not dealing with. So I have to, I have to handle it. But basically and this is the reason this is similar to your answers. Your answer is if you feel good, just run them out. If you don't feel good, do what you got to do. It's like, yes, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, should I, like, when do you get off a ball? Well, if you're down, if you feel like really queasy, like this doesn't feel right, well, then maybe you need to get off the ball. 
But if you get down and you feel really good, you think you're going to make it, well, shoot it. So it's like, it would be like, well, do you always get off the ball in or should I never get off the ball? It's like, no, no, no. Get off the ball if you need to get off the ball. And it's like the same thing, hill, hill. It's like, should you always take a ton of time? No, no, no. If you, if you know you're going to run them, run them. But if you need to take a minute to do what you got to do, then take a minute. So what I'm hearing is it's all circumstantial. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have to be aware and you have to like monitor that, you know, you got to have to kind of like know how to be in touch with how you're feeling. Uh, the same way, it's a great parallel of getting off a shot. You know, that's one of the hardest things, man. One of the, and one of the most important things to learn is like, how good do you have to feel before you pull the trigger? And you can't just get off the shot 10 times and wait until you feel perfect because at some point you just sabotage your, you, you, you lose the ability to ever feel confident if you were, do that. But, but at some point, you know, so it's like, it's the same type of thing. You have to be kind of in touch with your gut and you have to kind of be in your gut. Like, do I feel like, is my gut telling me that I'm in a spot where something good is about to happen now? And you have to like know that. And of course, the other half of that is knowing when your gut's telling you things aren't going to, something bad is about to happen. How do you, what do you do to try to get your, you know, not just physically, but mentally, how do you get yourself in a spot to where you could get past that and maybe get yourself back in a good spot again? That's a lot of what I teach in mental game, but that's also a lot of practice and a lot of stuff experience. But the point is, is just knowing what your gut is telling you is pretty important. And what you're on the hill, if you're nervous, if your gut's telling you that something bad might be about to happen, then you need to you need to figure out what that something bad might, like you have to ask the question, like if I were to shoot with my gut right now the way it is, I feel like something's going to go wrong. What would go wrong and why? And how can I not do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're, if, you're in, if you're in it enough to ask the question, it might be time to get up off the shot. Yeah, exactly. How do we get into, uh, oh, we were, I don't know. About, we were talking about being tired. We were talking about being tired. And so, okay. Like, so that's, that's, that's about Derby. And then we got into Derby. And so anyway, here's, here's something that's been on my mind. So I'll just segue. And this came up last week and it came up today and it's been heavy on my mind. It's about focus and it's about, and it's about, and it kind of relates to checking with angles too. So, and it relates to the competitor cycle as well. And, and this, I'll, I'll tell you what I, if I could sum up my, what I want to talk about is I really think focus is more important than fundamentals. And I think focus is, is maybe the paramount, you know, it's, 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 it's just critical. And so here's, here's what happened to me last week. And then I want to talk about what happened today. I got kind of two anecdotes. So last week I had a friend come over and we were playing some 10 ball sets, racist to five. And he's a good player, but you know, not a great player, but a good player. But the problem is like, I'm a good player. And so like, he's, you know, let's just say, I don't even know as far. Well, let's say he's like 580. That's a good player, but playing big table 10 ball, there's also a big enough gap that even playing short sets, like race to five, like we've probably played, you know, 10 or 20 sets in the past. And I mean, he's, you know, he can't win a set. He hasn't won a set. So anyway, we started playing and I was hungry. I was really hungry. And so I don't want to get into a hero story, but let's just say I played really good the first two sets and won the first two sets very handily. The other thing that's important to the story was something clicked in my head last week where I've never shot any straighter. Like, I'm not saying I've never shot better, but I've never, my, like my cue and I, I just, it was like the clouds parted and for like eight days, I felt like Jason Shaw. And so <laughs> in that state of mind, it was just awesome because my whole life, it's like, I feel like, I feel like I, I, I mentally and, and play the game really well and strategically play the game really well. 
And if, and if, and if there's anything that sets me apart from like the top players, it's just the striking ability. And then sometimes with the clouds part and I'm at the top of my range when it comes to striking, I mean, just for a minute, I feel like I could play the best pool in the world for, you know, a couple hours at a time or whatever. And, and then it's depressing to know that even when I'm feeling that way, I still need like three games to six, but you know, that's okay. That's just how good the players are. But it's, it's I, mean, I get, to, I get to feel that way. I'm not saying it is that way, but then what happened was the next set. I don't know if this kind of was like the super band desire, but there was almost like there was a part of me that was like, here, I just want two sets in a row. I'm stringing racks, playing 10 ball. And I'm like, I'm shooting so straight. I'm like, now's the part where I get to run the table over. Oh, it's like you, you had that, you had that mini competitive competitor cycle in the middle of the set. Yeah. And it's like, it's, you know, there's a cynical line where I come from uh, in sales where they say, how do you get a salesperson to stop doing something? You show them that it works. Mm. Show them it works. And what I had been doing had been working really well. But all of a sudden, I was getting a little excited about how, how everything was going. And I'm like, well, maybe I could just kind of like, you know, loosen up a little. Just a little. Because what I like to say is that there's two parts of the game. You got you to gotta plan, you got to execute. You got to plan, you got to execute. And I always say, you have to try to shoot like you're a champion. But you have to plan like you're a chump. Like, you have to plan like you're just not that good of a shooter. And you have to really try to, like, it's almost like you're playing scotch doubles and your partner is just not that good. So you really have to make sure you set them up for the best stuff you can, the so, right it's angle. It's so funny you say that, because we'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah, but no, yeah, I'm yeah. Try, trying to bookmark that for later. Okay. So all my life, I've tried to plan like I'm a, a chump and shoot like I'm a champion. And most of my life, I've planned like I'm a chump. And then I've shot kind of like a chump, but somehow with enough focus and enough effort and enough... You know, and, and and I shoot well enough. I mean, I put in enough hours to where I'm. If I'm a chump, it's because I compare myself with Phil or something like that. But the bottom line is, is that it gets to be somewhat effective. But then I start shooting really straight, and I started thinking, well, now is the part where I don't have to stress about every inch of the cue ball. Now is the part where I don't really have to go check my angle. I'm sure I'll be fine somewhere over there, and I'm hitting them good enough. And there's everything. I just I'll just shoot a ball in. And as soon as I start kind of like thinking I'm going to run the table over everything went to hell. And I, I'll, 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 I'll cut the story kind of short. Like, everything went to hell. And I proceeded to, like, miss multiple 10 balls and scratch and get out of line. And everything was going sideways. And and I realized that there is not enough straight shooting in the world to make up for um, a, a loose, you know, a reckless... I mean, like, you could be shooting really straight, but you hook yourself. It's like, well... Are you shooting straight enough to make the two rail kick? You just push yourself in. You know what I mean? Like, are you shooting that straight? And then when you blow a few chances like that and you sell out a couple shots and all of a sudden you're losing the set and you've dogged it a few times in a row, it's hard to have that same, I'll fire at anything from anywhere because now you're like, man, I, what's going on? And you start getting in that wrong side of that spiral. Yeah, like so you then, said, or that the circumstances have changed. That's 100%. So then the next set, I was like, okay, so I lost that set. And so I realized what happened, of course. And I'm like, okay, well, Blessed learned a little build you know, trip back to humility. So I uh, I went back to where I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to check every angle and fight for every inch. And I went back to that and guess what? It worked. That was one experience I had. And then today was another one that was really cool because oh, I had a really going to hit me. Really quickly, uh, just in case a listener doesn't know what the competitor cycle is, we've referenced it like a couple times in the last five minutes. Yeah. So not that you have to go through the whole thing, but there's I'll like the video. Yeah, just link link the video. Yeah, there, there's a cycle that that basically uh, 
uh, where you go from that beginner's mindset and then you start working on things, you get success and you feel like Superman, Superman turns into like ego, ego, you know, spirals into uh, bad performance to humiliation, but then humiliation leads back to humility and the beginner cycle. And suddenly it, it, it all, it all comes back around. Nicely done. Good recap. I'm telling you, I've, 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 I've heard your competitor cycle spiel maybe from three different sources, five different times. Like, (laughs) um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's burned into my memory now, but, but essentially you were saying that you went through that cycle, not, not just over the course of a, a season, uh, but within a game or within a couple games. Yeah. Yeah. It happens quick. And, and so today I had a student come over for four hours and we were actually just going to, we, we, uh, it, he wasn't, it wasn't a lesson, but part of what we did is we were playing some scotch doubles together. And at the, at the end of, we played a little bit. And then at the end, I'm like, we were going to play some scotch double six ball and six ball on a big table is a funny thing because, and you're, if you're a good player and you do it right, it can look very, very easy. However, it doesn't, it could look really impossible. That's it's, it's hard enough that it could, it could turn impossible. So here's my point. Here's what happened. Whenever I play the ghost race to five playing six ball, like if the balls are spread and open to where everything goes and there's nothing's blocked, then I feel like I'm like really high percentage to run out. But I, when I play, I throw, I just throw seven balls on the table, let them crash around. Usually one falls in. If not, I pull the lowest ball off and deal with the six that are left. And I don't break open clusters. So if there's balls blocked and balls wedged, sometimes you can't even make the lowest balls wedged up on something. What are you going to do with hell? That's the rules. But I also allow myself to shoot combos on the nine. So it, you know, whatever. But in my mind, I always assume I'm down five. I was out two to nothing because I assume I'm going to get two layouts where everything's just jacked up and I have no reasonable shot to run out. And I just, when I get those layouts, I'm like, well, I'll try them, but I'm on a free roll because I don't expect much here. Well, yeah, at that point, it's like percentage game. Yeah. So we start playing and I told him, I said, here's exactly what I said to him. I said, hey, this, you have to know this about the six ball ghost and about the ghost in general and about pool in general. But especially it comes up, it seems like it's more so in the ghost, but probably not. Maybe this comes up just as much in money matches too and tournament matches. But it's really hard to overstate how much pool is a momentum game. I told him what happened. So now it's an anecdote within an anecdote. I told him what I said, Hey, my last tune I was here with them, we played Scotch doubles. We were playing a certain format, raises to five, and we were going to play two out of three sets. We lost the first set five, zero. The second set, we were down two to zero. And we came back and won five, three. And then we won the last set five to one. So we went, we lost seven in a row. And then we proceeded to win 10 to 2. And I told him this. I before we started playing, I told him the same thing that it's a momentum game. And and that there's certain things you have to do then. And so I told my student today this. And I said, what that means is, is that every rack matters. Because even even if you're ahead, you know, four to nothing, all you have to do is get lazy and dog one rack and it's four to one. Then you get one rack that can't be run and it's four to two. And now you get another rack and all of a sudden you lost two in a row and you lose your rhythm and you dog something that's four to three. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's like, uh, and, and then even if you win that set, even if you, you know, first you might actually lose that set. And even if you win it, you might be off balance going into the last set. And now you lose five in a row because you're off kilter. So I'm like, I've seen this happen. But on the other hand, no matter how low you are and how far behind you are, 
sometimes all you have to do is make that one, you know, get through that one tough shot, that one key transition, that one come with that one shot to get one win. And sometimes it can snowball really quick, even when you feel. So you can never trust your feelings because no matter how bad you feel, it's really close. You can, you're closer than you know to turning it around. And no matter how good you feel, you're closer than you know to having it all fall apart. And, and so I told him this and I said, we have to fight. So here's what happened is we played two, we were going to play two out of three races to five. And before we did though, we played two sets just to kind of warm up and we lost both sets. We lost the first set. We won a game and then we lost five to one. And then I think we lost like five, zero, like literally lost to the 10 ball goes like 10 racks in a row. And then we played two out of three sets and we won five, one, five, one. Hmm. And I told him, I said, like, what, I mean, how do you go from losing 10 to one to winning 10 to two? And I said, and I, so I, I asked him, cause I'm like, this is an instructive moment. I'm supposed to be your coach. So I'm goddamn going to coach you. Like, what do you think was the difference? And it was a hundred percent focus. It was a hundred percent respecting the difficulty of the game and knowing that we're going to have to bring the absolute highest level of effort, like the absolute highest level of effort. And I, I think about, you know, the Popeye, the, the, the fictional character Popeye, mm-hmm. he was a strong guy, but when he had a spinach, he turned like superhuman, but then without his spinach, he was always kind of a big, strong guy, but he was very vulnerable and very, very vulnerable. But, and I'm like, that's what I think focus is. Focus is like the spinach. That doesn't mean that if you're focused, you're always going to play good or win. You're invincible. But it means that I have just seen it too much. Where And so for my game, I know that I'm at the level where my game is shaky enough to where if, if I do what I did in that set against that guy, where if I'm not walking around, checking my angles, fighting for inches, really, if I'm not planning like I'm a chump and then giving my 100% on every shot, my game falls apart and it's like I drop like 150 Fargo points in no time. But even though I've got oh, my game is that shaky, it's also when I'm focused enough and, and work hard enough, I can also turn in you know sets that might be 100 points higher than my normal. So it's like, I, I could turn it a 500 set. I could turn it an 800 set. And it's like, it's just a lot of the difference has to do with the level of focus. So in other words, focus might be worth 300 farmable points. I don't no. know, man. I don't know. So, so those are a couple of anecdotes I wanted to share. And, and that has to do with the importance of focus. What are your thoughts? What goes through your mind when you hear all that crap? Of course, pool is played in a range, but yeah, it's relatable. Like, I, of course, everyone's gone from losing 10 games in a row to winning 10 games in a row. It's so weird to say that that that, that is normal, but in pool, that's normal, and it's still somehow a mystery. If we could control it, then we would do it every time, and it wouldn't be a mystery, and yet it's still a mystery. Yeah, and, and part of it, too, there's one of the tricky things, especially with competitive pools, that you've got an opponent that's also going through their range, and so they can go from being not very focused, and then all of a sudden they can catch gears on you, and it's very strange. Um and you're right, like the focus, it is tied to the competitor cycle. You have to be in a in a humble state of mind where you have to be like doubtful enough about your own abilities to know. You have to be humble enough about your own abilities to know if I don't give 100% of what I've got, it's not going to go well. But you also have to be confident enough in your abilities to believe that if I do give 100% of what I have, it, it can go well. And it's like, so it's like, I'm not saying you have to doubt yourself, but you have to... 
you have to be humble and know that it's going to take everything you've got. And, um, yeah, anyway, um, that has to do with focus that we were talking about grind and fatigue and stuff like that. And so it just kind of maybe this has been on my mind. Cause that's just what I went through the last week. This is just the last week. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and so it's like, when I hear people talk about fundamentals, I'm just like, man, people are working on their strokes and people are working on their fundamentals, which is great. But here's what I would say to those people listening. That's really important. Do that stuff. But next time you play pool, work harder than you've ever worked before. And, and the guy I played with today, he said that when we'd been, we'd been doing some training together and he'd been playing really well. Then he said the last few weeks he'd been kind of going through a slump. And so I, you know, then after we played today, he says, I think I know why I was going through a slump. He says, I think when we were training together, like your intensity level will be played. It will be practiced. He's like, it was just rubbed off. I was playing really well. And then he said, then I, then I kind of was just playing into these leagues and I'm one of the better, actually it's like the best player in his league. And he's beating up on these guys that can't defend themselves. And it's like, he just started getting sloppy. And, and so that was like what I told him today. I was like, Hey, if this is ever going to like, just remember this now. So here's a question then, like, what can you do? Like, it's going to happen, right? You're not going to be a hundred percent focused all the time. That's not possible. But what can you do? to try to maintain higher levels of focus when you play. What do you think? Between between the energy that you have physically at that point, right? Are you playing in the morning in a in an all-day tournament? Are you playing at league at night? It's the last match. Um are you are you you know, are you just playing a friendly $20 game like what like it just depends. It's circumstantial, I think. Um for me what brings me into focus and everyone is different. I just recognize that when I play the best, it's when I'm confident. I, I place like leaps and bounds better. Right. And I think that's everyone, but how I get there is, is by being a workhorse. Generally speaking, I'm a methodical, like cerebral person in general. Uh, even if I'm like, I'll, even if I'm loud, I'm a loud, quiet person. Like in, in my heart of hearts, I'm a quiet person. Like I'm the last person at a party. I'm the first person to get out and try to be by myself. Even, what, even what's though a party, what's a party? I'm just kidding. Well, okay. I'm no. <laughs> we should bash so, up our, we should bash up our introvert, Gabriel. <laughs> so what I was going to say is, is yeah, yeah. In general, I'm a cerebral person. Um, if you know the Enneagram, uh, I'm a, I'm like a hard five. And so, when I'm playing, when I'm building confidence, it happens very slowly, like in, like incredibly slowly over the course of of like matches as I get more physically comfortable on the table and understand the table speed or how things are behaving, then I then I start to get more confidence. That's probably for me the most is if I understand the table, then I can understand my game the most. And then it just has to I, then I just have to bring my physicality to what I'm feeling about the table. So I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. But the funny part about that too is, uh, I was thinking, I was kind of thinking of it as like a chicken and egg thing. Do you, do you get confident because you feel comfortable on the table, or when you're confident, do you just get a better read on the table and feel better? And it's uh, it reminded me. Josh told me a story one time. Uh, There's a guy we knew that uh, he went and played him on his home table. And uh, after the session, you know, Josh wanted after the session, the guy's like, yeah, I was having trouble getting used to the table or something like that. It's like, it's your table. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Well, actually, so I had a, I had a match. I had a match a couple of weeks ago and this guy's got, this guy's got a brand new diamond table. It's a Modus 860 HR cloth. Okay. Like polished balls, the whole nine. It, it, 
it plays so incredibly fast. It's like a unicorn. Uh, at least where I live, nothing else is like it. So I get there and I play him and uh, I'm giving him kind of obscene weight, but what it doesn't matter. The match doesn't matter. I'm I'm playing and we play three sets. My first set, I have no idea what's happening. And then over the course of two hours, um, I I it, it takes about two hours for me to start to get comfortable. And then once I started to get comfortable, then I could really sort of approach the table with confidence built from like that workhorse nature. It's sort of like a, I, I get more confident the slower I work, but then as the confidence builds, I get faster. It's well, sort of, yeah, I talk about, I talk about like kind of like grinding versus like a freewheeling or grinding versus like rhythmic. And what I've learned is, is that for me, and I think it's the same thing you're saying, I can't try to rhythm my way into gear. I can't sure. rhythm my way to the zone. But if I grind, sometimes that grinding can start taking on a rhythm of grinding. And as I get into a rhythm of grinding, sometimes it can stop feeling like grinding and it can start feeling zony. But it's, but I'm always grinding. But I, I grind first. I grind, then I grind in rhythm, and then I just notice the rhythm, and I stop noticing the grind. But it's right. It always I used to do that any better. That's thank you. You yeah. Those are those are the words I'm thinking in my brain that that my mouth. So then say. we were the question was how do you know what advice for somebody to get focused? And I think you answered it. Uh, and I think I would say it this way. There's other answers, but this answer I would be like if I had a tip, it would be when you screw your cues together, understand that it's going to be a battle to. To get close, you know, get your focus more and more laser beamed from a lantern flashlight to a flashlight to a laser focus, and that that is the goal. And so, from the very, you know, from the rat warm up rack or from the very first leg or whatever, um, just understand that you are battling over three hundred Fargo points, and mm-hmm. what what's going to determine that is your level of focus. And so, humility is what it's required to to recognize the need for focus. You're not you're not good. Whoever's listening, you're not good enough to play this game without hundred percent focus. So understand that. Be humble. Know that you need that 100% focus. And when you screw your cue together, understand that's really the game you're playing. You're maybe playing 8-ball, 9-ball, whatever, but you're playing the game about giving 100% focus. Wait, and you're saying tell yourself that. Fundamentals? <laughs> well, the, yeah. So then, okay, so then I've got a couple other tips. Here's two other tips I'd have for people trying to improve their focus. One is you got to clear the clutter. So turn off your phones, quit talking to people, you know, don't be eating nachos and, you know, joking around. If, you, if you're warming up with some league buddies and you just want to, you know, listen, you do, okay, I'll put, put it this way. You could do what you want to do, but if you're if you're trying to get yourself in a spot where you're playing, you know, at the high end of your range, you're going to have to shut out the distractions. When you watch the Moscone Cup, um, those guys weren't on their phone during their matches. They weren't, you know what I mean? They weren't like eating nachos. I, don't, I didn't see them joking around and, you know, like that. Um, so anyway... You're not so much better than filler that you could get away with it and he can't. Okay, so that's the second tip. So one, when you screw your cues together, know that the game is, that's the game you're playing. Two, clear out the clutter. And then the third thing I would say is you have to do things to fill your fuel to focus that hard. So like this guy that's playing in leagues, he's the best player in the league and they're giving him 10 chances and he's, it's like he doesn't need to focus to win. So then what's going to keep him working that hard? And it's like, well, that's going to be a problem. So I do things to like try to keep that tank full. And so like, for example, one thing he told me was that he knew he'd been in a slump and he knew he was playing me today. So he, last night, he went and like, uh, 
spent a couple hours of hard work on his table and he was really buried down. He said he played really good and he got hit them really straight. And I'm like, look at that. I said, now, even if I canceled on you today, even if I called you up and said, hey, man, I can't do it, whatever. But it's the work. But just, just thinking about playing me was enough to where it fueled his tank to where he was able to focus hard and pull himself out of a slump. And so what I'd say is you have to be, you have to look at where you're playing, who you're playing with. Uh, you know, I talk about what's on your calendar all the time. What's on your calendar? Like, what are the events that you're going to that are scaring the hell out of you and making you dig deep? What, you know, you get, I always say you get two weeks ahead and two weeks after the two weeks before a big tournament, you start really getting ready like this guy did for me. And then the two weeks after a tournament, you usually are very focused and hungry because you just have this vision real clear of where you want to get stronger. And so you get like a month's worth of focus out of one big event. And so you don't have to play big events every day if you could play them somewhat routinely. And you could play a match here and that you can watch top players play. When you watch top players play, you talked about watching a lot of pro pool. That could really, uh, you could just monkey see, monkey do. You watch these guys focus and bear down and it just changes what you do at the table. So those, so, so my three tips, know that it's a game of focus when you screw your cue together. Uh, clear out the clutter and then really manage your own tank. It's like, you know, you've got to manage your, your tank. You can't just assume that it's supposed to happen on its own. So make sure you're putting yourself at, at fire events to where you're going to be really pushed and, 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 and model yourself after players that focus the way you want to. Those are my tips. Yeah. So I, I think along, along the focus lines for me, like when people ask me, like, what's the one thing I can do? And if I was in league and I, I've only done one season of a of a league and then I quickly jump jump the ship. <laughs> um but anytime they had asked me like what's what's how do I get better? I'm Adderall. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, that's the that's the <laughs> you know besides besides you know it's not really about fundamentals, it's about focus. I'd say it's more about process than it is about focus. The process brings the focus, right? If you have a process. Well that's well then the question what do you focus on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. What are you focusing yeah. on? Yeah. So it's like process over performance. Yeah. Because because eventually you'll get you'll get the performance. I think what you're saying is it's almost like you're not saying it to be like controlling, but you're saying to give your brain something to meditate on to bring yeah. that level of focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you, man. Yeah. So and 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 I know a lot of people that are like, when I need to play better, I just think about queuing straight. Or <laughs> or I think about I think about like making sure I don't hold my cue in a certain way. I'm like, I, I forgot what it's called. Uh, I've literally been like studying this thing over the last six uh, months. It was a, it was about um, physical therapists uh, and trainers getting their uh, trainees to improve via intra uh, uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations. Um, but essentially, if you give someone an intrinsic motivation uh, and a extrinsic uh, external like focus instead of instead of saying hey I need you to move your arm in a certain way to get more power or I need you to not grip your cue in a certain way to cue straight instead of doing that you would just focus on something outside of your body and say just let your body get to that point and naturally your body sort of compensates for it well, it's it's not a placebo, but it's almost like a it's it's almost like um a diversion for your for the control. So what happens is, of course, is the controlling part of our brain doesn't 
it, it, it you know, get attaches a lot. You know, the ego gets, it's very distrustful of our body's ability to perform. It's like, I, I talk about like the dad of the little league player where the dad's like screaming to get the back, back sooner and make sure you get through the ball. You're not doing this. And you know, the dad wants to like, you know, hit the, hit the ball for his kid. He can't just sit back and watch because the dad wants to take control when it's not his game. And that's how our, you know, analytic mind can turn into if we're not careful. And so sometimes giving, it's like our brain wants to control something. Um, it would almost be like if there was a, in the, in the delivery room, if like a, if like a dad was like really, really pacing around waiting for his wife to give birth and he was like, had too much nervous energy, they could like give him something pointless to do. Like here, stack these boxes over there, make yourself useful. Just get out of the way. Cause you're just making things worse by being frantic and running around. And we just, just go pile those boxes up in the corner. It's like, go play with this. And it's like, I feel like sometimes we just got to give our brain something to play with. So it occupies itself and, and, and lets our body do what it needs to do. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, it's coming to me. Optimal. It's called uh, optimal theory, uh, and it's it's an acronym for optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention for learning. And I'm reading uh, now that I've written this. Uh, autonomy, external forces of attention, and perceived competence can improve learning of simple motor tasks. It's a it's a complicated way of saying you don't need to focus on your body. You need to focus on a task and then, and your body will compensate. So that's sort of my approach to fundamentals. It's like, I, like I worked really hard on my fundamentals, but when people are like it, when I need to shoot, well, I just need to get down and make sure my cue is going straight. I'm like, that's not really. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of how this, like some examples of uh, what, what you could focus on. So can you give me an example of something that you would give your brain to focus on that would allow it to you're saying just focus on this is it's 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 really funny because in general we say don't focus on results focus on your process but when it comes to working on your process focus on the results and let the process come together <laughs> right okay so so and funny? i know you know i know i'm like, it's, I'm like mind blown right now <laughs> i know at some point we're going to get into breaking and yeah, so yeah. Like, if i'm talking about breaking not that we have to get into it now but like if i'm if I'm struggling uh, hitting hitting the one ball dead center, oftentimes I forget about aiming and I just tell my body to reach the head ball. Not not like leaning physically. I just mean like uh, it's almost like and like you just center like, your chest and heart around the head ball. But yeah, and again, it's not, not physically. It's it's more it's more just like mentally when I'm moving, focus okay. on. Focus on the back of the rack or the back of the one ball instead of checking my cue ball to one ball aim over and over and over again like I would normally and then say, I do feel like my my aim is locked in and then fire away. Instead, it's like I'm not I, I can't worry about that right now. Something something more subconscious is at work and it's throwing me off. So I just have to now focus my subconscious into just moving forwards and then the rest of my body kind of just adapts and maybe that's an experience thing like maybe it's just i have i have a lot of experience with body movement and and you know proprioception kinesthetic awareness extraception these are all like fancy stupid terms for me that really helps just saying well, focusing on different but is still part of the goal yeah you know like i've done this with bank shots where this may sound kind of stupid but these are the funny things that like these are the things like what goes through people's minds when they're envisioning certain shots. So sometimes when I shoot a bank shot, 
like say I'm shooting a cross side, but it's not like a super routine one. It feels like that pocket. It's like, man, I don't know where it's going to go. So this, don't laugh at me now. This is like, a, you know, I'm in the tree of trust. So sometimes I picture a target 50 feet behind the pocket. Mm. And almost like if the pocket were to go on for like 100 feet behind me. And it's like, I don't want to just bait this ball cross side. I wanted to set it on a line that goes through the side pocket and continues for 50 feet. And then I just, and I, and then I think about how long, like if there was a pocket 50 foot back, like where would I bake it? And all of a sudden that side pocket feels real close. Cause it's like, I'm trying to establish this line where it doesn't just hit the pocket. It goes through the pocket. So it's like, as you talk about the break, I'm curious to try that where it's like, when I look at the break, I'm not just trying to hit the one ball square. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my body and set up to where I want to send my cue and cue ball down that line for a 50 feet, you know? It's like a visual projection. Yeah. 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 And it, and it's just all of a sudden it's like the right. So I've tried stuff kind of like that with the break, but not quite the same. So now I'm excited to try. So we'll get to the break. We'll get to the break. In martial arts, at least in, in in my teaching, we, we've always uh, done stuff like that. We're like, when it, when it comes time to push a hundred percent and you know, how hard can you hit this target? We don't think about where the contact point of our body goes into the physical target. We think about sending the energy of our body, our entire body through the target and as far into the horizon as possible. That's kind of, you know, mentally the, uh, the picture and, and those kind of tricks help with a lot of different things. Like when I was talking before about optimal theory, there are, there are, uh, trainers who will tell their trainees to like when they're doing pushups, don't focus on extending your triceps focus on pushing the world away from your body. Well, that's kind of a weird concept, but it helps. It actually increases performance. It's just a weird mental trick. But yeah, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm really clear because if I'm not 100% clear, I know not everybody is. I, I think I get it, but I'm trying to think of like a different situation to see if I could get this right. So to recap, optimal, and I'm not going to remember the anagram, but what I remember about it is we're going to, we're going to give ourselves an intrinsic target to focus on to, to, allow our body to perform uninhibited and even to make adjustments uninhibited by our conscious process. And so an example of that, let me just think of something else. Like if I'm, if I'm shooting and I'm undercutting everything, instead of trying to sit there and like figure out why am I undercutting everything and all this stuff, what I could do instead is I could just sit there and say, maybe I visualize the contact point differently, or maybe I, maybe I, um, maybe I, I, I focus on really zoning in on like the angle that the cue ball is going to come off the object. But like this used to help me on spot shots from the kitchen uh, is that sometimes I'd have a hard time visualizing the cut shot. So I'd really lock in on like where, if I hit this ball, the center of the pocket, where would the cue ball hit the end rail? And I'd really visualize where the cue ball would hit the end rail. And I would really start building that in. So that now I have a second reference point when I'm aiming is like, I want to send the cue ball to that spot on the rail. And that's what I would start focusing on. And of course, I'm still aiming and shooting the ball in, but now I'm giving my brain, maybe maybe that's not a good example, but I'm both, I'm giving my brain some additional context to help lock the the feel of the shot in, but I'm also distracting my brain from trying to control the aiming process. So I don't know. For me, on like in that circumstance, what I do, and this has helped me a lot, and I actually learned this from the guy who, who got me into pool, is uh, what he would do He's a very visual person. He's a uh, uh, he's an artist. What he would do is he would say, "Just make the pocket bigger." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. He, he visualizes like, and I do this all the time now. Where like I visualize the pocket 
physically moving on the table up towards the 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 public at pac man gabbling up the ball yeah yeah it's a pac-man pac-man is coming for your ball and then once i realize oh there's no way to shoot the the mouth of the pac-man is right in front of the object ball then i go go ahead like it's it's sort of like that idea where instead of saying oh, i just keep overcutting i keep overcutting let me focus on making sure i hit this maybe a bit thicker than i normally would uh, yeah and- yeah well what i like That's- about that and I do something similar, and I know Josh talked about doing this too, because we both stumbled into this. And so when one of the things is when you look at a shot, if you have, we were talking about what what do you do when you have a bad feeling in your gut? And so this makes, so so sometimes you got to do something to give yourself a good feeling in your gut. So for example, suppose you've got a shot where, oh, we'll just stick with the, we'll stick with the spot shot. Another thing I might do, you were talking about make the pocket bigger, you so Josh would picture making the pocket closer. You talked about having the you know, the pocket kind of approach the cube, uh, the object ball, and gobble it up. Some things that I sometimes do is you know sometimes you have a nine ball hanger gobble where the nine ball is like perfect center of the pocket out oh, yeah. that you could catch. As long, you, as long as you hit the nine, you made it. You can hit an end rail first. You can hit a side rails first. That nine's hanging and it's like pretty much unmissable. Sometimes if I'm sitting there looking at a shot that I don't feel good on. I'll picture the nine ball hanging in the jaws where all I got to do is just touch that nine. And what happens is all of a sudden I go from feeling like, ah, this is tight. And if I don't hit it right, it doesn't have to go. I could catch thick. It could wobble. And my gut, I'm just in a bad feeling spot. So how do you change the bad feeling? I picture the shot that would make me feel good. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, I could do that. And now I feel better. That's great. Now That's I feel better. I got to do that. Yeah. Learn now I care. feel better. And now the funny part is you might think, well, the nine ball is not hanging. So you got to still hit it accurately, but it's, yeah, but now I feel better. You know, I'm more likely to hit it accurate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got to try that one. But is that an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, it is. And I know part of that is just like visualization check techniques, whatever, but but yeah. it makes a physiological difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Okay, so thank you for sharing. So we were talking about focus, fatigue, focus. One of the, oh, I know what I was going to say, uh, this is totally random, but I bet to tell it. When we were talking about your YouTube channel, uh, what we were talking about what it is that you bring that separates it from other YouTube channels. And there was something that I like about your YouTube channel a lot. What I like about it a lot is it's not playful. You're serious. You're definitely serious about sharing information. Well, there's a few things I like about it. First of all, you're not duplicating everything that's been done before. So you're not, you know, maybe you will. I'm not, I'm not I didn't ask, but like you're not out there recreating videos where I could find 10 other videos on ghost ball aiming. You're bringing stuff that is on your mind and on your heart and stuff that's meant a difference to you that you're not, that, that you're bringing, you're adding new, new ideas and you're introducing new ideas and, and, and new stuff. Uh, but you're also, you're, you're sharing your passion and sometimes it is playful. It's not that you're not like the one uh, that cracked me up. Uh, you did one that was fun with the pronouncing names. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. The way you pronounced uh, Nick, uh, Nikos, uh, the way you, you know, like it kind of popul- populous or something like, anyway, it was the best. It was really, really good. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I just remember how I finished it. Uh, I said, uh, Albine Ogushchan. Yeah. Yeah. You were, yeah, it was great. Like, I mean, if you just read is the letters in that guy's name, it's the Albine. Yeah. And of course it reminded me of the key at Peel. I don't know if you've seen the one with, uh, Jake Quellen. Anyway, so hey, hey, uh, yeah, a a Ron. So anyway, uh, the bottom line is is that you bring an energy to what you do, where you're doing what you want to do, what's pat, what you're passionate about, in a in a in a very artistic and kind of fun, creative and, and playful 
but but useful way. And I really like it. So I just that's what I like about it. Well, moving on, Nate, I want to talk about one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is I wanted to talk about the break. Um, and I know you've got a lot of exciting ideas to share about the break. Um, it's a vast, you know, topic. So um, what do we want to what did you want to share with us today? One of the areas that that I get a lot of traction on, at least on my channel, is everyone ends up looking up ways to break, especially like 10 ball pop break. So uh, and it's and it's a passion of mine. I almost treat it like it's its own sport. So, um, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about the pop break. Yeah. And, and so you say 10 ball. Uh, I'm sure you'll get into this, but um, does what a lot of our listeners might be playing bar table, eight ball. Right. That's right. similar. Is it a similar? How much overlap is there between 10 ball and eight ball? Uh, lots of overlap. It's basically the same break. It just depends on how you want to treat it. And we can get into that okay, a little bit great. later. But, but yeah. Okay. So somebody's got a break. Let's just talk about an average player's break. They're getting up, hitting as hard as they can, clipping the head ball. The cue ball's flying in the side pocket or running forward or into one of the corners and getting kissed around. And they're only opening up half the rack and going off the table. What should they do? Like, what, what do you think? What do you want to tell that person? Well, I think it depends on what the goal is, right? A lot of people don't really know their goal when they're breaking. And so uh, I think let's, I would just start with what is a pop break and why it works and then, and then um, talk about where people go wrong and, and what they try to accomplish. Cool. Lead on. So the pop break is essentially it's when the cue ball strikes the one ball full. Generally, the cue ball starts around the center of the table by the head string, somewhere around there. Uh, it strikes the one ball full. And the weight of the rack pushes the one ball backwards, but the cue or the cue ball backwards, but the cue ball flies up in the air. And then there's a little bit of top spin involved, and that sort of squats the cue ball towards the center of the table. I'm, I'm sure most of the listeners have seen it before or know what it is. So I'm not really going to get in too much into what it looks like. But I don't think most people really understand why it's important. So, why it's important, I think there's really two facets is one is just like what you're saying is like the cue ball flying off into one of the side pockets kind of over and over and we see that a lot with uh amateurs uh and myself included i have spells where they just find the find that side pocket over and over um times. dude it's 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 rampant um and so the biggest reason i like to work on my break is because that that pop break really helps you avoid the side pocket as much as possible so the idea is the what's happening is you're the the cue ball is leaving the slate and lifting up in the air, it's literally bouncing off the slate. And then it strikes the slate again a few inches in front of the one ball and then jumps up. Uh, and so it's in the air when it strikes the one ball and that's what makes the one ball pop. It's not like the cue ball is flying and it's in the air the entire time before it hits the one. Generally speaking, it hits the slate before the one and then strikes the one and pops backwards. It allows you to avoid those side pockets because when it's in the air, it's not actually contacting the the cloth so that forward spin is not holding the cue ball towards the center of the table it's coming back beyond the center of the table beyond the side pockets before the forward roll takes on the cloth and so if the key, if you miss hit it all um the cue ball is going to end up curving and striking uh behind the the side pockets whether it's a diamond or less or whatever you're gonna you're just gonna so it's almost like it yeah, so if you hit it and if you're not in the air and you miss hit it at all, the cue ball bounces off the one ball and arcs with topspin right into the side pocket. But if it's but if it skips in front of the one ball, hits the one and jumps back, the topspin it may be spinning with forward spin, 
but it's in midair and it can't really catch. It's not going to influence the cue ball's path so that it bounces back, lands on the felt behind the side pockets, and then arcs into the rail. Yeah. It, I mean, even if it lands uh, um, in front of the side pockets, it still has momentum going yeah, backwards. Yeah, it skips backwards. Yeah. yeah. It skips backwards. Exactly. Yeah. That's one reason is, is that you're going to avoid scratching more often, just like we were talking about in the side pockets. And then another reason is because you're you're just it's easier to control the one ball. You're going to get more movement on the one ball. And so a lot of people, yeah. So a lot of people, especially, so let's talk about this like medium speed break, right? This very controlled pop break where, where you're not hitting it with all your might. You're, you're hitting it at a good clip, maybe 17 to 19 miles an hour, something like that. And the cue ball pops backwards. You're getting a decent amount of roll on the one ball. Cause what happens when you hit a ball in the air um, like a jump shot, the object ball is also going to leave the slate. And in this case, that's the one ball. So the one ball is going to pop off of the rack and it's going to develop a roll. And it's going to actually roll a little bit further with more pop. And getting that one ball, depending on where you place the cue ball, you're going to get that one ball tracking towards one of those bottom two corner pockets where you're breaking from, depending on where you put the cue ball. It's a really good way to set up a nice one ball, especially if you hit it square, keep that cue ball towards the center of the rack. You start with a really nice shot. Basically, uh, if your cue ball's on the cloth and you use like a uh, like a rolling cue ball that never leaves the table, you're kind of smothering the one ball. The one ball can't move because the cue ball's kind of smothering. It gets in its way. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, the, the, the cue ball is getting out of the way of the one ball so that it can roll towards that corner pocket. Okay, so that's why we want uh, a pop break. Gotcha. Yeah, that's why that's why we want a pop break. You can totally make those those second row balls towards the side pockets um, uh, without a pop break. Um, I think it's easier with a pop break, and it really just depends on a few different variables, and and, and depends on table conditions and what you've figured out on whatever table you're playing on. So I'm not going to talk about making balls with the pop break, but I think it's most the most important qualities of the pop break is that you're not going to scratch, and you can control the one ball. Well, I think it's funny because a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people talk about how it seems like you're adding a lot of variables and it sounds, they make it sound like it's adding this wild variable of having the cue ball balance and how much harder it is to control. But you're actually saying it makes it easier to control because it's, so it's, it's actually kind of counterintuitive. So I'm glad you said that. Totally, totally counterintuitive. Yeah. So what uh, are we going to how? Okay. So let's, let's first talk about like, what are the mistakes people make when they break, right? And, and feel free to chime in, but I, it basically it comes down to two things. Um, one being timing, bad timing, and the other being just not hitting the cue ball square or not hitting the, not just the cue ball, but not hitting the one ball square, right? Miss hitting the one. And there's a lot of fa uh, factors that go into both, but, but essentially for bad timing, it's just making sure that at the peak velocity of your stroke, you're striking that cue ball, you're getting the most out of your sling, you know, and that, and for me, when I see, I think the most important thing is timing. Exactly. Oh, I'm sorry, that was, that's a timing joke. I see that I interrupt you by nothing. No. <laughs> okay, forget it. Okay, okay. It's I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got a childish sense of humor. Okay, so I'm sorry. Keep going. I think timing is by far the most important aspect of breaking. So you've got to get your peak velocity right as right before or as you're hitting the cue ball. That's what you're right. right. And and so what people end up doing wrong is is they try to muscle it, right? They use a lot of muscle. And and when you use a lot of muscle, what happens is you get so tense you actually end up slowing down or you end up just like yeah, just end up 
crunching the mechanics and nothing is timed very well. It's hard to control anything. There's no consistency. People just try to use whatever they can in their arm and it doesn't really work out for them. So that kind of crushes the timing. Uh, and another thing people do is, is like me, they add a lot of extra mechanics, whether it's leaning forward, standing up, you know, bigger arm swing, all the follow through, all the, all the things, right? They're trying to put so much emphasis on getting everything that they have into the cue ball that what ends up happening is they end up moving everything forward and they end up adding all the, all of these mechanics. It might be exponentially adding some, some speed into the swing, but it usually ends up adding all of those elements too late in the swing. So you end up contacting the cue ball too early in the swing and you're wasting all those added elements. Yeah. You know, there's a, okay. So there's a couple things that kind of are running through my mind. So the first thing is whatever you talk about timing, I always think of my analogy of trying to hit a home run in baseball. And, and instead of swinging the bat, if you try to like tense up and shove the bat, it's just not going to work. I'll tell you what, it took me over 20. I mean, it took me 25, 30 years before I tried everything. I killed myself with the break for years and years and I did everything. I was the most stubborn guy in the world. The only thing I didn't try was taking all the muscle out of the break. It was like so counterintuitive <laughs> to me. It was like, it just didn't even seem possible until I just beat my head against the wall so long that finally it was like, you just don't get to hit it. You just don't get to hit it. It's not the shot you think it is. And so for everybody out there that's trying to like slug the break and make them explode and just, you know, like shove the cue through the rack and detonate the rack. I'm telling you, I tried it for decades. All that worked, all, it, all that happened is it led to inaccuracy and, and very inconsistent results. And so, and not much power. Uh, because you just can't generate that much power with a with a shove, and so, yeah, so that's that's poor timing. And then what Nate is saying too is that a lot of the stuff with your mechanics that you're trying to do to add speed, um, it happens too late. Like I remember watching Danny Harriman, the Danny Harriman break from the '90s. I don't know if you saw this one where he'd like first he'd break, and then as he went through the cue ball, he'd leg kick, and then he would jump like two or three <laughs> inches in the air, and it was like. It was just all this. And I remember, uh, I remember Jesse Ankles always telling me, he's like, he's like, you don't have to leg kick, man. This ain't the nineties. So anyway, it was kind of funny, but, uh, okay. So that all happens too late. So you, so in other words, better timing and sooner. So we've got, but the, but then the thing is you're saying we've got to get up to speed sooner, but that sounds like it takes more muscle. So explain. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's just do what not to do. I'll, I'll go through all of the adjustments in a, in a minute, but okay. But- yeah, so so essentially bad timing. Uh, the other thing that I think people do wrong is is they're just not hitting the ball very square. And I'm totally, I mean, I'm I'm guilty of both of those things: bad timing and not hitting the ball square. But I I think what's really helped me, especially lately, is recognizing that because it's not a normal swing, your alignment, your stance doesn't have to be normal either. You just kind of have to do with with whatever works well for your body in order to get that cue moving reliably in a path where you're, where the cue ball is going to be smacking that one ball more or less as straight as possible. And, and there's no, there's no real easy fix for that. It's just, it's just trial and error. If they're related to some extent, because as I've taken muscle out of my swing, my accuracy has gotten better. Um, oh yeah, for sure. And so I, even tonight, like I was hitting some break shots that I just thinking about, thinking about this and I was very inaccurate on my break and we could talk about fixes and techniques, but 
one one thing that really helped is like even even after I say I figured you know I've learned a lot of these lessons, but even still, every time I struggle with accuracy, I'm always like needing to back off every single time. It's like and that you know it's just it's amazing. Old habits die hard, man. And it's like the idea like the idea of how how much swing you think you need versus how much you need. It's unbelievable how little you could do with your cue and still generate an amazing break. It's a cool experiment to just rack the balls. And then instead of trying to break the balls, just swing at the balls without breaking them. Just go ahead and swing straight, you know, straight and just with a level cue and just watch it. it you won't get a great break out of it, but but you'll spread the rack. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah it's people, how heavy people, the surprise themselves. people totally surprise themselves all the time, which is like, just treat it like a normal shot. Just like a medium stroke speed, go ahead, just plant that cue ball on top of the one ball like a normal stroke. People surprise themselves how well they break doing that. And it's amazing how long it takes you to try it. It's like, it's, you know why? It's because it's just like, it's almost like this. It's not just about a stubbornness, but maybe it's like, I don't want it to work. I want it to work the way I want it to work. You know what I mean? It's like, well, it doesn't work the way you want it to work. It works the way it works. So quit trying to smash. Them. Well, one thing I would say about accuracy is is that again, it, alignment and stance all depends on the person. So I wouldn't go and look up like how like all these different players get in their stands or get in their alignment because everyone's body is built differently, right? I'm not the size of freaking Kachi, right? I'm a short dude and <laughs> and I'm I, I'm right handed and very left eye dominant. My vision center is pretty far over on the left side of my face. And so I'm already contorting to get over the ball shooting normally, let alone breaking where I need a little bit more space to let my my hand and my arm sort of swing through my body a bit. So everything's going to be different for me than it's going to be different for you. So I would just say right there, just explore, explore as much as you can. And, and most importantly, do whatever feels natural to your body. So alignment is going to be trial and error based on, you know, not trying to fix, follow a fixed template. And and that also that also includes elbow position. I think a lot of people freak out about you know where your elbow is and how straight your arm is moving and stuff like that. It, I just think, and I know we've had this conversation already about about um, uh, fundamentals and and really it not being that important at a certain level. And I think that even is is more so with the break. Okay, so those are the mistakes: timing and accuracy. So let's now move into like what a good break really looks like and and we're still on this medium speed break again 17 to 19 ish miles an hour i think fedor has the best if not one of the best medium speed breaks on the planet and that's not just because he's easily one of the best players on the planet it's because like watch it it's incredible it's like he he hardly moves his body and the balls just go exactly where he needs them to go um and and he also has that power break that we'll get into but but for the medium speed break, I think he's he's the best. So talking about those two points on what most players do wrong with the break, right? There's timing and there's accuracy. With timing, the break does not necessarily follow the same guidelines of a normal stroke. Everyone talks about having like a pause on their stroke and whatnot. Go ahead and watch Fetter break. There's never a pause on his break. It's kind of crazy. I would say that and people go, no, that's a lie. Fetter's always got perfect fundamentals he's always going to have a pause watch him break i dare you he there's no pause i, I made a video uh, on Federer's break where i go through something called the stretch shortening cycle um there's this really cool thing that happens with your muscles uh when they lengthen so when you uh, extend your arm and your biceps sort of stretch 
and your biceps, the muscles are attached to the tendons and the tendons are the like the body's natural springs. So what happens neuromuscularly is when you stretch your muscles, your tendons get a signal. It's a it's a, an electric signal to to instantly contract that same muscle, right? With no effort, the muscle just wants to contract when you expe- extend that muscle. And so at the transition between extension and contraction, where you are now um, trying to contract those muscles and then stroke the ball, there's this cool thing called amortization that happens. You get a lot of additional uh, speed uh, at the beginning of the movement, right? So like, again, the, the tendons are stretching and like springs, if you stretch a spring and then release it, all of that energy is suddenly going to be applied. It's potential energy that is being applied to the, to the new course of the, the muscular uh, action. So on the, so on the backswing, you're extending your arm on the backswing and you're kind of like creating this buildup of like spring or, you know, co- recoil action. So when you get mm-hmm. to the back of your backswing, if you just let it kind of rebound into a forward swing, it'll actually kind of jolt you forward with a, a, a burst of uh, an acceleration. Whereas right, right. if you pause on the backswing, you kind of like eliminate that effect and then you have to start from zero, which maybe on a normal stroke, you don't need to get moving very fast. And it, and it would actually be better on a normal stroke to start from zero and kind of have a nice, smooth, accurate acceleration. But on the brake shot, you can just come back and instead of pausing, you bring your arm back and just let it kind of let it kind of do its natural thing, which is to start going back forward. Yeah, exactly. Reflexively. And if you ever exercise with like uh, uh, exercise bands or even just a rubber band, stretch that rubber band or stretch to that exercise band and you'll notice it heats up. There's heat in there when you when you stretch that. And then when you let go of that stretch, all of the, the cold kind of comes in and that heat goes back into the um, the energy of, of that band coming back together that's exactly how that muscle behaves or the how the tendon behaves right it heats up and then and then you need to let go of that heat and if you hold there too long it doesn't work as well think of it like a like archery right Mm. like you're pulling back a bow and you're just letting the muscle release it just wants to naturally go that way and so there's no additional effort and you're getting additional speed right so that's probably what i assume Federer is doing is he's He's getting a little extra speed without extra effort, and he's almost moving his body, not at all. Um, okay, so you're talking about the 17 to 19 mile an hour hop brake that Better uses the control brake, and at that speed, is it a pretty normal stance he's using? Uh, as far as I know, yes. It's not like I'm, I've never like, seen it in person. Is he is he lifting up and kicking, or is he just kind of staying? He's just swinging. His- he's not lifting up and kicking when he does his more powerful break, and you you'll see this on on like the Predator uh, series events, or when he plays like the ten foot table challenge. He does that break where he he does that sort of flamingo kick and and lets his back leg loose a little bit. He does do that when he needs to hit him harder. But generally speaking, yeah, so no. there are adjustments for the bigger power break, but for the 17 to 19 mile an hour, he's basically just from the elbow down. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll get to that too. Yeah. But, but cool. he, yeah, so he has no, no pause. And then his follow through is, you know, a lot of these really great breakers, they have really big follow throughs. And I think a lot of amateurs look at follow through as a goal for, for powering a shot when really, I mean, watch Shane Van Boning shoot a normal draw shot. He, his follow through is like two inches, dude. It's crazy. I don't know how he does it. But then when he breaks, his follow through is like two feet. So so you can't really follow the same, you know, ideas of what follow through is for for breaking. And for me, like 
it took me so long to realize that follow through was not a goal when breaking. Follow through is more of a byproduct of of good timing, right? And the idea is that you know you're 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 smoothly accelerating all of your speed. I say smoothly. You're really just getting all the acceleration into the peak velocity right at contact. And as soon as you make contact with that cue ball, your strokes should, should just be either maintaining that or slowing down. And I think having that natural relaxation into your stroke after contact is one of the reasons why follow through is so long. It's like if you're if you're riding a a, a train, train's heavy and needs to break. It's gonna take a while to slow down and break. Right? It's not like you're gonna use your muscles to stop the stroke. You kind of gotta let it just go. If if we're talking about that relaxed swing, the follow through is a byproduct of that swing. It's not one of the goals. You're not pushing forward into the follow through. It's just happening. Okay. So a couple things you're saying is for the 17 to 19 mile an hour pop rig, you're not having to do much uh, in terms of getting your body involved. And you could kind of just break from the elbow down, you know, bring it, bring your arm back, let it kind of rebound forward with a natural kind of reflexive forward swing. And then, and then try to get your peak speed, be, you know, before you get to the cue ball so that you're not hitting the cue ball, and then still muscling it from there. So, so what is that? Exciting? I mean, it feels like we're talking about not using a ton of muscle, but then we're trying to get our cue up to speed pretty quick. So how fast do we really need to swing our arm or like how, I mean, how much muscle is needed to get your arm? How fast do we need to be swinging to get to an 18 mile an hour, 19 mile an hour pop rate? So, so when I'm talking about 17 to 19 miles per hour. I don't, I don't think it's really your arm that's moving that fast. I do have other elements that I include and I can get into those elements more when I talk about, I'll go through like a power break, like how you get more speed, but I do add those elements into a medium speed break. It's just, I think when I see Fetter do it, he's got such this perfect stroke anyway, that he's not really incorporating all of those things. Well then, well then, let's talk about length and elevation. How long of a bridge are we using on this break, and how elevated do we need to be to get it to pop? Elevation is is almost um, it's that's also counterintuitive because people don't realize that elevation as as important a factor it is to sort of play with to figure out where where the break is going on any given table. I don't think it's necessary to elevate to get a good pop break. And, and the reason, and I can get more into this too, is, is because of tip placement. Really quickly, uh, deflection is a thing, right? A part of deflection, which is squirt, the angle at which the cue ball leaves the cue tip is important. So if, if you have left spin, cue ball is going to deflect to the right. If you have right spin, cue ball deflects to the left. And uh, people don't really talk about this. If you have bottom spin, cue ball is going to deflect upwards, right? That's only natural. If we're going to abide by the same laws of physics. And so when you're breaking and you're adding a little bit of that top spin, whether it's quarter tip, half a tip, full tip, depending on how you're breaking, that cue ball is actually deflecting into the slate. So elevation for me becomes less less of a huge factor. I think a lot of people are trying to force a pop by getting crazy elevation when they don't need to. It's more about having an accurate Q-tip placement and really making sure that you're diving your your cue towards the slate. You're almost like you're pinching the cue ball into the slate with where the cue tip is placed above center, deflecting that ball into the slate and bouncing it off the slate. And that's so that so the picture of being elevated, shooting down to the cue ball like a jump shot, 
that's not really what's making the cue ball jump. What's making the cue ball jump is that we're swinging through a tip above center. It's deflecting the cue ball into the slate and allowing it to skip across table. Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of both, right? Obviously not exaggerating elevation is probably uh, a good way to go about it. Um, There may be moments where you just need more elevation and you kind of have to do whatever your hand and your bridge can can do comfortably. Uh, But by and large, I don't think I don't think you have to go to the extremes to get a pop. No. Yeah. Yeah. So like I see some people trying to like make their bridge on the rail or something to really try to aim down at the ball. But because, yeah, because even on a fairly level cue, like with a tip above center, there's always going to be a little elevation on every shot. And with the speed we're coming through the cue ball, that's that combined with a tip above center is enough to make it skip. Right. I would almost argue that elevation is is the least important factor in getting the cue ball to pop. There are a few adjustments that I make. I said, you know, let's go into adjustments, right? So, so we have Fetter's break where you know he's got that medium speed break where his timing is great because he's got no pause. He's got this perfect stroke, follows through nicely, and then he doesn't have a lot a lot of body lift, right? He can kind of stay down a little bit on the ball, just enough to get he stay he gets up off the ball just enough to get his arm through the shot, right? To get that follow through, but that's kind of it, and. And that might be like the perfect standard for breaking. I don't know if everyone can do that. But the way I would adjust whatever break you have on the table really depends on what you have. And there are kind of three key elements that I am always looking out for when I'm breaking. So let's say I'm getting used to a table and I I have maybe 15 or 20 minutes and I can break maybe 20 times, something like that. I'm going to make certain adjustments and... Just pay attention to the table and see what's happening with those adjustments. I'm going to be adjusting one cue ball placement, two elevation, which again is probably the least important factor, and three my speed. So, it, in my opinion, speed and, and cue ball placement are probably more of an important factor than elevation is, because you can adjust where the cue ball is landing in front of the one ball just with cue ball placement and speed. Right. Makes so it, 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 right. So it doesn't really require too much finagling with how high you're bridging and all that, unless the table that you're breaking on is particularly, you know, unresponsive to to cue ball placement and speed for some reason, and you need a ton of elevation. Right. There's there's always those outliers. Um, and so with cue ball placement, let's just start with cue ball placement. Right. I said cue ball elevation, a cue ball placement, elevation, and speed. So for cue ball placement, when I'm making adjustments, it's really about paying attention to how the cue ball is reacting off the stack and what balls are going down, right? The easiest way to adjust where the balls in the rack are spreading, you know, specifically that those second row balls um, going to the side pockets, the four railers going all the way around. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with what I'm talking about there. So there's in like a 10 ball rack, and an eight ball rack, the corner balls in the back go to the short rail, then the long rail, then cross over each other back again at the short rail where you're breaking from to their respective long rails around the table and then back towards their pockets that they initially started pointing at. Yeah, so uh, whatever they could go. So the corner balls could go in the pockets that they're closest to, but they don't go directly. They hit the end rail, then four rail around the table. And so, yeah, exactly. So those are two balls that are in play. And then the other two balls that are in play that you're talking about 
are the two balls racked in the second row just behind the one ball, they have a tendency to track towards the side pockets. Right. Right, right. Well, we say there's, so there's technically four balls in play that we're talking about now, but really there's more. There's the one ball that you can control going to the, the corner pocket, like I and said the earlier. Third row balls tend to go cross side. Yeah. So and third then, row ball. Yeah. And then the back row ball. And then the back row balls in the middle, they go cross corner by where you're breaking from, right? It, exactly. They go, they go straight back from, from the short rail to the corner where you break. Um, and, and so all that is being said, Cue ball placement is the easiest way to change where all those balls, uh, all those tracking paths where those balls go, right? So if I if I need the second row ball on, if I'm breaking slightly from the right and I need that second row ball, the opposite side from where I'm breaking from, that's going to dive downwards further away from you, right? The more sideways you are. Okay. So, so hang on. So when you say downwards away from me, so lower like like below the side pocket it's going to go lower and lower and lower yeah yeah towards and the, then well i always thought that the closer to center i broke from the more it came back towards me like the more those second row so like if i'm breaking from dead center yeah. they might hit on my side of the side pocket and then if i move a long way to the right they might it might hit below the side pocket. yeah exactly yes okay yeah okay so i think we're trying to maybe, find maybe so if they're if they're catching if they're catching the point just below the side pocket then you just move it a little bit closer to center and if it's catching the point on our side of the side pocket, then you just cut it a little bit more. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So again, cue ball placement is the easiest way to adjust. I think for table conditions and to see where those balls are tracking. Right. So if we're using a template rack where it's really reliably you can see those tracking paths, um, that's that's one way to do it. Right. And but let's not just think about cue ball placement side to side. Right. So cue ball placement can also be forward and backwards. I've actually seen Tyler Steyer break, placing his cue ball upwards to maybe half a diamond or so backwards because he's powering the brake so much that he needs that that much more distance for the cue ball to land in front of the one ball and get a pop instead so of landing. The way he breaks, if he breaks from the head, the head string, the cue ball, it's actually coming down on the one ball instead of bouncing up off the cloth. Right, yeah. I, I saw him, there's, I think he was playing um james aronis there's a youtube clip of it i think jerry jones is commentating and he literally says have you ever seen anyone break where they get the one ball to react so much off the rack that it comes up and gets shaped down from the the headrail up to the side pocket (laughs) oh wow yeah and that's what he was doing he was backing the cue ball up so he could smack the rack so hard that the that the one ball would come down to the head rail and back up to the side pocket and you'd play the one in the side. Hmm. Okay. So those are two adjustments. Well, the placement is one adjustment and then there was speed and elevation. Okay. Yeah. So then there's speed and elevation, right? Elevation again, because of what we talked about before, that's not the most important point, but it is, it can be important, right? It is an easy way to adjust for maybe a little bit more height on the cue ball. If you're, if you keep getting that low pop and you just need a little bit more, so you can, you know, uh, direct the balls where you need to go, where you're not getting this much movement on the one ball, something like that. Then, then yeah. Maybe what's a the best way to adjust your elevation? Do you just kind of move your bridge? Do you try to make your bridge higher? Do you move it closer? Uh, I mean, what do you, what what is your and how much how much of an adjustment would you make before you think you've maxed out the wiggle of adjustment? Right. So an easy way to adjust elevation, I think, is only to adjust high and low. Because if you adjust the length, 
then you are also adjusting the timing of your swing, right? And and I think with more length also comes easier timing sometimes, um, but then you get less Q-tip uh, accuracy and, and so that can maybe tumble out of control. So there's that sweet spot balance, I think. Uh, oh, really? So what do you say adjust your elevation? Basically, you mean if you want, if you need a little more pop, but it's a weird one because you were saying that half the pop comes from hitting highball and deflecting into the cloth. So if we're hitting a tip above center and we're not getting enough pop, would you go to like a half a tip above center so that you're coming down at the cue ball a little bit more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I might I might do something like that uh, first. I might just, instead of changing anything about my, my cue ball placement or speed or elevation, I'm just going to adjust my tip placement slightly higher, yeah. right? And really try to get a high ball. And if I do that and I get a pop, but then the cue ball runs loose, then I know it's, I got to address something else instead. Got it. Got it. So you've got your tip. And then what about speed? Because we can't, we're not going to be adding a ton of variables with body movement and power breaking yet. But what about speed? So for speed, I, I like to think of speed as a game of efficiency more than it is a game of anything else, right? Uh, when you're talking about speed, you're you're talking about again goals. What's your goal? If your goal is that to break the one ball in half, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, if the goal is is uh, to get that sweet medium speed. At, when I say medium, obviously it's not a medium stroke for like a normal shot. It's medium speed breaking, seventeen to nineteen miles an hour, something like that. And I know I know some people that struggle to get seventeen, and they're they've never done it a day in their lives. And that's fine. I think be your own judge. Just for clarity in the topic, I'm just calling a medium speed 17 to 19 miles. Okay, so speed. <laughs> it's a game of efficiency. Okay. If you are, a lot of people talk about when like a normal stroke, they talk about like the least amount of variables, the better, right? So in other words, not coming up off the ball, not adjusting while you're on the shot, keeping your elbow still versus elbow drop, all those things. Everyone who, who is a proponent of no elbow drop, granted, I have an elbow drop, so maybe I'm biased, but everyone who talks about not having an elbow drop talks about like introducing other variables that are now going to make your stroke worse. Well, when you're breaking, the fewer variables you have, the more you are leaning on one singular variable to induce all of your speed, Right. So if you are only relying on one specific set of bicep muscles to contract in order to reliably get a power of like 80 miles an hour, good luck, man. That's not that's not really going to work out well for you in my eyes, right? Maybe some people have the muscular activation to do that consistently, reliably. It's not me. Um, better do. How does he do it? Because you said he has minimal body movement. So what else is he doing besides just well, his arm? Yeah. Well, besides having the stroke of God, um, <laughs> I think, uh, I, like what I said before, that stretch shortening cycle where you don't really pause, that does a lot. That does okay. a lot, right? If you have, if you're getting a lot of extra um, velocity, especially like explosive velocity at the, at the earlier part of your swing where you need it more for good timing when you're breaking, instead of, again, normal strokes where where the timing is is more critical towards the end of the swing, when you're breaking, timing is more critical at the beginning of your swing. 
um, because of follow through length and all that stuff, right? And so for Fetter, again, quick backswing and then no pause getting through the ball quickly, that does a lot. Um, and, and I'm sure he's doing other things maybe with his wrists or his fingers or like not really observable things. Um, but yeah. But the big thing with speed is it's not always adjusting to as much as possible either. It's also knowing should we be breaking as hard as we need, you know, how hard do we need to break to get the break we want? So, so speed, elevation, and tip. So my question is, we know, I know a little bit, I know you've already told us that if the second row balls are coming just shy of the side pocket near the rack, the end of the table, then we can break from a little square. But other than that, like what, what would tell you to adjust? Uh, and it sounds like elevation. If you're not getting the pop, I'm trying to think of like what I've learned about the adjustments. I know to adjust thicker, you know, move towards center to get those second row balls to come back a little bit more if I need to back them up. Um, I know that if I'm not getting the pop backwards I need, that I can maybe adjust my tip position a little bit and uh, and maybe maybe bring my tip down just a half a tip above center instead of being so high to kind of add that little bit of elevation to get the pop. Um, but what like what other like how do I know what adjustments I need to make? So those so far did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When would you ever adjust your speed down? When would you not hit full throttle? So okay, so I was I was um, I had a practice session with with Bo running in again, my coach. He we were we were playing um, doubles ten ball, and we actually had to move tables. We started on this newly clothed table, right? It was just it was it was just reclothed, pretty slick conditions. Super fast table, really reactive. And when I broke there, I realized that I I didn't need as much speed. The cue ball wasn't lifting as much off the table, but I was I was fine with with that because it was sliding back so much that I didn't, didn't really need to worry about cloth. Didn't have the friction, so you didn't need to pop it as much. Exactly right. Like once I got the break dialed, I was making literally two, three, four balls on the break, like every break. It was crazy, and I wasn't hitting it hard. I was probably hitting it you know, 17 miles, maybe even 16. It was because of the new conditions, right? So yeah, I yeah. think knowing knowing when is a really difficult task because it just requires a lot of experience. And then we moved to the new table. I had no idea how to break. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make a single ball, it seemed. And then Bo was like, screw it. I'm just going to hit it really hard. And then that guy can break. He's a beast, right? The guy, the guy hits him. 23 miles an hour and and makes two three balls and squats the cue ball it's gross whatever um <laughs> anyway it's just dependent on on conditions and then also trial and error if you're if you're breaking you think 18 that sweet 18 miles an hour break and you're not getting anywhere change your speed see what happens that's a good thing because I think that a lot of people might never have tried backing off their speed. You know, it's just such, it takes a lot of discipline and you got to just stay focused on what do you want to do? Do you want to hit them as hard as you can to, to and make it work your way? Or do you want to find a way to send the balls towards the pockets? Yeah. Right. And and I know we keep talking, we keep going back to like that relaxed break, kind of kind of taking effort out of your break. But just really quickly to go over why I was talking about like, putting all your eggs in that basket of like just moving like your like no elbow movement no body movement just your bicep right when you're stroking i understand why people like that but when you're breaking trying to get the same muscular contraction every time 
at a high enough input level with just one set of muscles is not going to cut it, right? So when I talk about relaxing your body, relaxing your break, oftentimes I'm also introducing other elements, whether it's standing up or having a loose wrist or other mechanics like driving from my back leg, standing sideways, chicken elbow, other things, right? So a lot there are lots of mechanics that you can involve in the break where instead of trying to get 18 miles an hour with with one asset, you're getting 18 miles an hour with five or six assets, except the amount of effort it takes for all of those to add up to 18 miles an hour is far less. Yeah, you're not maxing any of them out. I got it. So up until now, though, we've been talking about just a, kind of an elastic snap, medium break, we're just playing with speed, tip, and cue ball placement. Now you're talking about some other factors. Are those the factors that you involve when we start going to power breaks? Exactly. This is where we get into power breaking. Well, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody so, wants to know, how do you break the one ball? <laughs> how do you break it in half? The easiest way is is just for me is, is to recognize what type of um, mechanics work for your body and trot, just play around with those mechanics in speed as much as you can to the point where you can get the timing right. Again, it's all about timing. So play around with mechanics all you want, but if you're not getting the timing of those mechanics to get the speed into the Q-tip at contact and ins instead of later um, in the swing, but before contact and at contact, then it's worthless, right? So so you're talking about playing around with them. I'll, I'll share the things that have helped me. And one is bridge length and two is standing, standing taller and I'll tell you what my experience is better than you can tell me how this fits into your understanding because I think you understand it better. The reason that I use a longer swing uh, and I use probably a 12, you know, a full diamond. Like I think if I'm breaking from the head string, my hand, my bridge, my, my bridge hand is usually like a diamond away where the cue is coming through my fingers with about a 12 inch gap on a nine foot table. So that's about my bridge length. I used to try to, I used to think that I'd be more accurate on the break and hit it more squarely and, and be more accurate if I was closer, but it was wrong because kind of like you're saying with the multiple variables, when I'm further back, yes, stroke errors will make more of an impact when I'm a foot away, but I will have less stroke errors if I have more runway. So I don't need to, I have more time to get my cue up to speed. So ding, it's ding, almost ding, like, ding, 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 yeah, ding, so yeah. it's almost like if I'm a diamond away, I could accelerate with a medium acceleration and get plenty of power. And then my stroke goes straight. And if I'm six, if I'm eight inches away, I have to accelerate really, really fast. And then I'm very inaccurate. So it's kind of, again, counterintuitive is the word of the day. My accuracy gets better when I'm a foot away. So that's the first thing. I'll, I'll let you comment on that. Cause you're digging me. I want to hear that again. Go ahead and dig. I, I heard <laughs> a ding. Uh, here are all the things that Demi said, right. Uh, so I do. Yeah, you nailed it. I don't really have anything else to add. It's just uh, not that you need a longer bridge and the longer bridge that you have, you know, the better break you're going to have. Otherwise, people would be freaking rail bridging it two diamonds away, which is not the case. Um, so obviously, there's a balance. You got to strike a balance between accuracy and speed and speed timing, right? And so for Demi, it's it's uh, about a diamond away that nice relaxed string, uh, that nice relaxed swing, and then you can get some good accuracy and still have natural power in there, right? Maybe for someone who is really short, it has to be a short bridge or someone who's really tall, it's got to be a longer bridge, whatever fits naturally for them. Um, 
I'm about the same. I'd probably say I have about a a, a 12 inch uh, bridge, and then I play around with that. You know, sometimes I need a shorter bridge. Sometimes I need a longer bridge. Um, and like I said before, if if you're talking about adjusting elevation, it's usually higher and lower. I'm not usually adjusting my bridge length because then it also changes the timing of your swing. But if your timing is too early, having a longer bridge helps timing. And if your timing is too late, a shorter bridge helps timing. So that's that's interesting because you talked to me about this uh, another time one time and I thought something was really interesting. So let me come to the other thing I was talking about, which is standing up a little taller. So when I used to watch the, the players break with their power breaks, they'd all kind of lift their body as they swung. And I used to think that that was about like throwing their body weight behind their cue somehow. And what I've come to believe anyway, so you can fill in the gaps, but it's not really about throwing your body weight into your cue. That standing tall, what that allows you to do is it allows your elbow to kind of get into the shot and collapse a little bit during your swing so that basically instead of swinging from the elbow down, you're kind of letting your arm swing from the shoulder down and it's like you're using a much longer lever to swing at the cue ball. And when you have a longer lever, it just hits a lot harder without having to use more muscle. And so, so what I've done is I'll, I'll just, I, and I, and I can't, for me, I can't get down, aim with my chin on the cue and then lift up as I break that throws me off somehow. So what I do is I just get, I don't get down on the cue ball. When I break, I shoot like the old straight pool players where their foot, their chin is like 18 inches over the cue. I just get into a really elevated stance and then I don't move my body when I break. I just let my arm, my full arm, you know, my elbow drop and my full arm swing into it. So I basically start my break from where everybody else finishes their break. And I just use kind of like a, a long arm swing. Yeah. Does that, totally. that, that, that make sense? Totally makes sense. I actually think that's how, that's how uh, Jeremy Jones breaks, I think. Oh, uh, okay. I th- maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I thought he, I heard him talk about that before. Um, where he just he just ends up standing sideways and standing up a little bit, and then he just moves his arm no different than his practice swings and lets it go through, and that's how he breaks. It totally sits right with me. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I am one of those players that stands up as he's uh, swinging the cue, so I get down, my chin's on my cue, or at least you know uh, uh, pretty close when I break. I don't love to get my chin directly on my cue because then that just means my body has to move upwards even more to uh, to get that swing through. So there's a sort of balance. Um, you get down a little bit. But is that correct? The reason why people lift their body is to allow their arm to swing? Indeed. Yeah, that's, that's dead on. Yeah. Okay. And, and then one thing, then the last adjustment I make, so the first two were 12, you know, longer bridge that I use on both shots, 12 inches. Um, I... I Either either address the ball standing up or be ready to lift your body up so that your arm can kind of swing. And then the third thing would be for me is that when you let your whole arm get involved, as you drop your elbow, as your elbow drops naturally, it raises your tip so that if you want to hit a tip above center, I actually have to put my tip like I'm aiming at the cloth because yes. because. That way, it's like I'm aiming at the cloth, aiming at the cloth, and then as I swing, it's like my arm kind of swings into it and my elbow drops. And anybody that wants to try this, you could go ahead and aim at the dead center of the cue ball with a normal stroke and then try lowering your elbow. And you'll see, well, as you drop your elbow, the, the tip comes up. So so basically, uh, for me, I have to aim at the felt. And sometimes, and I learned something from you when we talked before, I'm excited to get to this, but um, 
but I have to aim at the cloth so that when I, so basically those are my three adjustments. It's like 12 inch, 12 inch bridge. Uh, st I stand tall and then I, I put my tip at the cloth and let my elbow kind of drop and my arm swing into the shot a little bit. Those are my kind of adjustments. So that's for me. Really quickly. Cause now I'm curious, what did, what, did, what did you learn from me? So what was really cool is you said something, which is, uh, what I, what I learned is you were talking about when people aren't getting good timing, it's because they don't hit their peak speed until after they hit the cue ball. And I didn't know this. I would have, you know, it's, it's a little bit unusual, but basically, and, and you, what you said is that a lot of times when people are swinging their body, when people are swinging their cue like this, and on, especially on the power brakes, that, that their body starts moving forward. And that oftentimes if they have a 12 inch bridge, when they're, when their body starts moving forward, it actually like pushes the cue forward a little bit and they end up hitting the cue ball like maybe two inches before they hit their peak speed. And so, right. and so one thing that, uh, and, and so one thing you said that they could do is picture the cue ball two inches closer to them and try to get it to peak out two inches before the cue ball. And so the reason I, and I'll let you respond and maybe you can explain it better. But the reason I got excited is because there's something I do, which is not only do I aim my tip at the cloth, sometimes I end up aiming my tip an inch or two in front of the cue ball at the cloth. And so I never realized why, but I think it's because as I'm swinging into it, I might be letting my body movement might be shoving the cue forward a little bit too. So in order for my timing to be perfect, um, it's almost like, my tip is aimed at the, at the, and, and I'm not the only one. Jesse Engel does this too. I was watching him and he'll be, he'll, his tip will be on the cue, on the table, two inches in front of the cue ball. So his tip is touching the felt two inches in front of the cue ball out his yep. practice strokes. And then when he breaks, he goes right through the middle of the cue ball because his arm collapses and he probably kind of is his body movement probably makes up that two inches. Everyone's going to be different. Everyone has their own uh, stroke and everyone's sort of uh, swing downwards towards the table. Like you're talking about. If you're standing up over the table and your arm is swinging down, everyone's proportions are different, right? So, so like if again, if I'm Kachi, I don't have to really stand much taller because you can't. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then if if you're Alex Pagulian, or or look at Jeff DeLuna, dude. Like Jeff DeLuna, when he power breaks, he literally has to jump off of the ground in order to get the the angle for his cue to dive downwards into the slate. Um, and I haven't gotten to that uh, at all, but but I guess I could now. But but everyone's body is different. And so that just requires a different level of movement and a different movement and different preparation from everyone. So uh, I hate saying like, here's how you break this way, or here's how you do fetters break, even though I've done a video like that. Or here's how, here's I, here's how I, I did like a karate break, right? Um, where like I'm going to, um, involve a lot of elements that I use from my martial arts background into how I break and here's how I do that. I'm not saying you have to do all those things in order to get power because those things work for me, right? But I would rather share those things to see if people can at least explore. Well, we talked about, we talked about, are there any other adjustments for power breaks um, besides the ones I mentioned? You know, I mentioned, you know, basically allowing your arm to swing along bridge, uh, you know, budgeting for the tip to come up while you swing with your full arm. Uh, you, you know, are there any other tips you would advise to play with? Uh, at oh man, I, I, I could, I could have a whole nother two hour podcast just on individual mechanics for breaking. I'm not going to do that, but I'll, I'll mention some things. Um, so you actually, you mentioned 
uh, standing up pretty tall and letting your arms sort of drop and your elbow collapse downwards. I think what's important about that is also focusing on the fact that your hand, your grip hand, should be moving towards the cue ball. It's not just swinging down like a pendulum with the hinge in place. The hinge is moving forwards and so is the hand. And what's really cool about this is that it's actually evolutionarily a really uh, neat things that that creatures, including humans, do where our the portions of our body are built for efficient movement. And uh, it, it's actually really close to something, this is going to sound really weird and out there, but it's really close to something called uh, a brachistochrone curve. Um, and it's it's a big word, but but go look it up if you can, brachistochrone. So the brachistochrone curve comes from something called a brachistochrone problem. It was a mathematics problem. I forgot when, hundreds of years ago, it was it was devised. But basically, the problem is, what is the path of the quickest descent in which one object would fall diagonally from one placement in space downwards to another placement in space? So think of Think of like the, a ball traveling 45 degrees diagonally downwards, right? Yep. If you were to draw a ball, you've got a ball on a ramp. The ramp is one foot high and it runs one foot to your right. It comes down at 45 degrees. Got it. Right. Well, I, I didn't get to the ramp. So the idea is that you would devise a ramp or you would devise a curve of the ramp, a curvature of the ramp that would en enable the quickest descent from point A to point B, right? And what they found was, it's funny that you say a ramp. A lot of people would assume that, oh, the shortest possible path between two points is what? A straight line, yeah. A straight line. So you would think, oh, from A to B, if it's a straight line, it is the most efficient. It will be the fastest. That's not actually what happens. Um, so if you're just using gravity as the single source of force being applied to, to a ball moving in, in, in that direction, a straight line is not the answer. It's actually the slowest answer. Um, the The quickest answer is something called a cycloid. And a cycloid is, it's not exactly like a quarter circle. A cycloid is where you would take a, a, a circular object, put a point on that circular object, and then rotate it in space. And as that circular object rotates, uh, you, would, you would follow that path in space. That path in space is the cycloid. I'm going to look this up. Yeah, go go look it up. It's it's hard to explain because it actually the fastest descending path goes underneath the horizontal line of point B. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I see it. It's the it's the brachistochrone curve. Yeah, brachistochrone. Yeah. But, oh, okay, I'm sorry. That's what I said. That's what I said. Brachistochrone. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at a recrete my gosh, Brachista Chrome Curve right now. Why can't they name it like Tom the Tom Curve? Anyway, <laughs> so it does. It starts off, so it's not a 45-degree ramp. It starts off with a really st steep drop that gets like like a circle. Like if you're looking at the left side of a circle as it approaches the bottom of the circle, it starts off with a pretty healthy curve, but then it does. It drops below where we want to end up, which sounds, again, counterintuitive, but I suppose it allows you to actually accelerate for longer and then even yep. though you're climbing a little bit at the end as you're kind of coming up the other side it actually you have so much momentum that you gain on the way down that you still more quickly get to the end yep that's actually true and if you watch it's so crazy if you watch breaking 
some of the world's best breakers. There, you can see the peak of their hand when when dropping downwards. It actually dips below either the table or it dips below the line where you would draw a straight line from. To, yeah, 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 so yeah. It dropped. What you're saying back up again. So what you're saying is is that when you use an elbow only, when an elbow down drop, you're only accelerating your hand along a you know like a a plane. Whereas when you when you're kind of standing up and you let your arm swing into it. You're actually your hand, while it's, while it's, it's got to drop. Your hand is up in the air when you're jacked up on this break because you're, you know, whenever you're elevated on the break and then you level off as you swing. You're the downward motion of your hand is actually accelerating and picking up speed that's going into the cue ball. Yeah, you're getting a, a you're getting a lot more speed with a lot less effort. So and even the, though I should explain because I I didn't make this clear is that when I'm addressing the cue ball one or two inches in front of the cue ball on the felt, I'm standing tall. My cue tip is an inch or two in front of the cue ball on the felt. That means my cue is pretty elevated, but yeah. it doesn't hit elevated. It just starts elevated so that as I swing my arm and my elbow drops, it comes through level, but that's actually allowing my hand to start, you know, whatever, six inches high in the uh, above the table. So it allows the downward swing of my hand. It's picking up speed, moving as it levels off, not just as it moves forward. That's pretty it cool. That's yeah, pretty cool. It, it's, it's super cool. So go look up the Brachistochrone curve or the Brachistochrone uh, problem for anyone who's really nerdy and and interested in and in stupid stuff like I am. Um, uh, but yeah, if you if you compare some uh, some stroke swings to the Brachistochrone curve, I think you'll be quite surprised at at what you find. I'm not saying they're one for one exact matches. I just think it's interesting that the more of that type of curve that you see. With uh, with a lot of the power breakers, you look at Shane, you know, you look at even you know Jeff DeLuna, you look at uh, uh, Tyler Steyer, even Federer's break. When Federer changes to that power break, he stands up and he kicks that back leg out, right? And 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 that curve is more more present. And so even even to the point where he's actually diving the Q-tip downwards towards the ball, which is another another thing that I I like to do what I'm I'm getting more a more powerful stroke is I try to maintain that Q tip placement downwards through the through the ball. I think it mentally helps and I think it physically helps uh the movement as well. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So we've talked about the break for a while. Obviously there's there's no limit to how many variations and different, you know, of course then there's different right. games and cut breaks and all this. But for now, to recap, we've talked about the pop break as being useful or eight ball breaks and 10 ball breaks. Uh, the cue ball wants to be popped in the air so that it can skip backwards so that it doesn't arc into a side pocket. It skips backwards of the sides or it doesn't arc until it gets past the sides. Um, we've And also it doesn't trap the one. We've talked about people hitting with too firm of, you know, their, their timing's been too poor. They're trying to muscle things too much uh, and they're not very accurate. And we've talked about the fixes for that is accuracy is fixed by relying on timing it's more accurate to use a smoother motion and then um and then timing kind of comes from uh not having to generate all your power with muscle but rather using the kind of the rebound effect from the backswing to kind of let it naturally re- you know reflexively you know kind of rebound forward on the on the backswing uh as as so that being kind of the key for a good pop break and as far as elevation we're just going to use uh, a little bit of elevation, but mostly just a little bit of offset or combined with a little bit of a downward strike on the cue ball to help it skip and pop. Then 
that's going to work for your template breaks. That's going to work for your eight ball breaks when the conditions are good. But when you're dealing with triangle racks and bad racks and you want to start adding power, then we've talked about the adjustments, you know, standing taller, letting your body arms, you know, body and arms swing into the shot like a used to chrome curve. Uh, we've yeah, talked about it. We've talked about uh, focusing on hitting your peak speed an inch or two before the cue ball so that you're making sure that you're peaking out before the cue ball, not after. Uh, and we've talked about, uh, you know, just kind of not maxing out one variable, but rather using using length of the bridge, timing of the swing, a loose a loose grip, good, you know, good recrease to chrome curb, all that stuff kind of coming together to produce a good hit. Yeah, and I would I would say that just just to literally name the things that I try, just in case people are are curious and want to try to explore, I do things like I I got a really loose wrist. I use some finger mechanics. Uh, I drive with my back legs. Sometimes there are some different mechanics involving the lower half of your body, even you know slightly turning your shoulder or, or turning your hips. You know, don't pause on the stroke so you can get that stretch shortening cycle in. Um, standing sideways, chicken arming or chicken elbowing, right? So you have that elbow cocked backwards a little bit and you can use more of those lateral muscles. There are so many things that you can do to improve, uh, efficiency and speed. Um, and those are just some of those things. I'm not going to get any, into any of those things. I'm just listing them. Out. Right. And those, and the main key is those things are not designed so that you can try to muscle it as hard as you can. Those things are involved so that you don't have to muscle it as hard as you can. Correct. And then the and, only other thing I wanted to mention is just something that we were talking about accuracy. Um, as far as tips for, you know, as far as tips for like improving accuracy, I'll tell you one thing that's been kind of helping me. And of course, this is all a visualization thing. I have struggled to hit the one ball square. And when I try to hit the one ball square by aiming at a certain point on the one, or if I try to aim through the one ball or aim the one at a point on the rail, that stuff hasn't worked as well. The one visualization with the break that's kind of helped me is I picture trying to get the one to press the two balls behind it. Like, I know this sounds weird, but like, I know I want those second row balls to score to the side pocket. And if I, if, it's almost like if I picture like I'm shooting a combination shot where I'm really trying to get the one to press both of those balls, not evenly, because obviously I'm breaking a little bit from one side. And so generally that's going to hit. The, the one I'm hitting more square, a little bit firmer. But if I try to make sure that I make even contact between those two balls with the one ball, something about that picture in my head, like I'm trying to press the one ball into the two balls behind it, you know, fairly evenly. And somehow that helps me lock, that helps me hit the one square much more than anything I'm doing with my eyes. I don't know. There's nothing weird about that. Um, I, I think that's, a way that you visualize it that really helps you do that. And what visualization is freaking a crazy powerful. People don't recognize that what you see in your mind affects how your body moves. And it's, it's not like hippy dippy hogwash, whatever it's that's how you literally live your life day in, day out is you see things, you react to it. Your body reacts. You're not thinking about where your bones and muscles are moving on the day to day. Right. Pool is no different. Um, granted, we have elements where we're trying to, you know, create efficiencies and pay attention to certain things and movements. But uh, by and large, absolutely, you're right. Visualization is everything, and and I would I would go as to go so far as to say, 
that that might be more important than focusing on the actual mechanics of how your body is moving. For me, it's it's just a matter of it is a matter of visualizing smacking the one ball pretty center. Um, but the way that I adjust is just I just stand in a different spot slightly when I when I get down. I just if you know anything about bowling, um, how you adjust your aim when you bowl, you adjust with your feet, right? You just adjust the approach slightly at a different angle, and suddenly the same the same movements make that ball go where you need them to go. And so I sort of treat it similarly, um, not always, but in in some cases when I'm adjusting aim. Very cool, Nate. Well, listen, um, I think we can wrap it unless there's anything else you wanted to share. Yeah, the only other thing I would say is that we we opened this segment by talking about breaking 10 ball, but it's also the eight ball break. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's essentially the same thing. And most people, when they're playing eight ball, they're playing leagues, they're playing on bar tables. And so I would say just the breaking on the bar box is essentially the same thing as breaking on the big table. You just have to know where to put the cue ball and what speed to hit the ball, right? So like I consider there to be two ways to break on a bar box. I actually have a video coming out called Two Ways to Break on a Bar Box. And it is, you know, you break from the head string, uh, kind of like that medium speed, like we were talking about that Federesque uh, break where you're really focusing on accuracy. Um, and you're breaking from the head string, and then you just play around with some of those variables, like I was talking about those three areas of key adjustments. Uh, or what you see a lot of pros doing uh, that are really breaking well on a bar box, what they do is it's kind of counterintuitive, and it doesn't seem like you would get a big pop break from this, but you would break from the rail. You would use a rail bridge. I know you were talking about, uh, about uh, bridging on top of a rail. That's not what I'm talking about. But you're talking about the bridge it off the end rail though, right? To get like their yep. back of the head string of foot. Exactly. Yeah. So if we're talking about the same idea of this, this like head on break, right? The head on break breaking from somewhere towards the center of, of the table. So instead of breaking on the, by the head string, you would move that ball back about a diamond or so, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little bit more. And you would just use a regular rail bridge and the, diff, the, the, the speed and you just handle the pop by using speed and Q-tip placement uh, uh, as the as the single factors to get that pop. Um, and so, you know, you just maybe you got to hit a little bit higher on the ball, but that also means that you got to hit a little bit firmer on the ball. And yeah, and go watch sir, go watch some top notch bar box uh, eight ball and ten ball, and you'll see those guys breaking from the end rail a lot. And so the reason they do that, just to be clear, is one. And it really stabilizes the bridge. You get a very consistent tip accuracy. But number two is it allows you to have more room between the cue ball and the rack so that when you have the right power and skip with, you know, the high ball deflection, whatever, when you have the right pop, it allows the cue ball time to land before the one ball. So it's bouncing up and, and popping back. So if you're if you're breaking from the head string and it's not popping, then sometimes backing it up to where your foot off the end rail will actually help with that pop. Is that right? Indeed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And oftentimes I would say that breaking from the rail requires a more powerful break. You know, like maybe not 18 miles an hour, maybe closer to 19 or 20, maybe more. Sure. Uh, and and then, you know, if you're not really looking for a pop break and you're just trying to crush crush the head ball and make as many balls and eight balls as you can, you know, follow those speed tips. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to break from the rail. Uh, I still do anyway, but... Um, but yeah, you know, it's not like it's a it's a it's a rule. Nothing is ever a hard rule. 
It's just uh, whatever is working on your current conditions. No, it's good. We have a lot of yeah, a lot of people play eight ball, and uh, it's good to it's good to know. And you're right, I've uh, I've seen that, and so I have some things I get to play with. So cool, cool. And then I think one thing too, I really I really have taken away is your attitude towards the break and your enthusiasm. You know, you told me you, you broke as much as six hours a day and it's just that amount of enthusiasm. I mean, you know, for years and years, I like, I get, I was resentful of the break in the nineties. You just smacked them really hard and hope something went in and nobody really, nobody really got it or, or cared. And, and, and the level that most players played at the break shot wasn't all that important because, you know, if you came up dry, you'd probably get back to the table anyway, playing big table nine ball. But as as competition's gotten better, template racks have been introduced. The breaks become, you know, racking and breaking became a bigger and bigger part of the game to the point where even at like a, at a strong amateur level, uh, the break is very, very, very critical in winning matches. And certainly at, as you get into the professional tournaments, it's like, don't even bother showing up if you're going to just sell out on the break every rack. And so I used to be kind of resentful. Like, you know, I spent like, you know, I grew up playing straight ball. You know, I spent my whole life learning to run balls. And then now all of a sudden there's this one shot that's totally different than any other shot. And if you don't know how to hit it right, it's like the rest of your game is good for nothing. And so I looked at it as like a necessary evil to learn how to break. And I look at I look at how that's affected me. And it's like, well, that attitude, it may be how I feel, but I can't allow that to be like, I'm not saying I can change how I feel exactly, but kind of like the stories you tell yourself, you know, if you sit there and you keep having that thought pattern, oh, this is stupid. And the game doesn't really start until after you hit the balls and we shouldn't have to mess around with these racking rules and checking racks. So let's just start the game and get going and we'll start shooting from there. Like those kinds of attitudes. And if we tell ourselves those stories, you're going to, it's going to lead you to feeling resentful and, and, you know, and a little impatient with the break. And it's not going to lead you down these paths to develop it. And so what I what I've been inspired by listening to you is a love for the break and enthusiasm for the break that hey, this is a fun part of the game and it's something that's fun and exciting and it's a challenge like all the other challenges of the game we love and that and that by diving in and exploring it and really learning it that we can not only get very competent at it but have a skill edge against our opposition and grow to you know grow to like this as a part of the game that can help us uh, get the results we want. So it's just been good to it's been good to talk to somebody that's a little bit. A little bit more uh, positive about the breaks. <laughs> I, honestly, and uh, we've talked about this before, but but all of all of the obstacles that pool presents itself with and breaking is certainly included. You know, and this is just part of my overall attitude. It's just it's not it's not something I have to overcome. It's something that I get to overcome, and that's it's taken me a, a little bit to sort of get to that mindset. Even yeah, no, for sure. And the other thing too, a bonus is that when you're breaking good. If you can get your break down, the timing of your break and the accuracy of your break, it seems like everything, like it just seems like it gets you to stroke. Like I've had a lot of experiences where you're practicing your break for a while and then you go to shoot and you just feel like, you just feel like crisp and accurate. Like, like it feels like uh, even on firm shots where you might normally lose a little accuracy, it seems like, it seems like every shot's a soft shot after working on your break for a while. It really does get you tuned up. So, so for anybody that just needed a little swift kick in the rear, there's my swift kick in the rear. Practice your break. And and honestly, like we talk about in in like outside of the break, there's that one shot that gets you into stroke, right? It's like you're 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 uh you're down like nine to five and he's on the hill and you gotta come with it and you finally make that one sweet, sweet shot, and it was that medium firm speed shot. You had to hit it perfect and it gets you there, right? 
And then suddenly you're you're running balls like maybe you hadn't in a long time. At least you hadn't in that match. I, there's no reason the break can't be that. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right, Nate. Well, uh, thanks for sharing. The, uh, so again, everybody that needs to uh, go to your, your YouTube, Sensei Nate Plays Pool, and uh, you can watch and get better visuals on some of these things. And then, um, yeah, Nate, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll hear from you again. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it, man.